That's what United are. They're a trust fund. They're also a content provider. Yeah, a sitcom. And Football Club is not really one of them anymore. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. All right, it's bang on half past seven. It's Thursday morning. You're very welcome along to OTB AM. It's just Jaron Owen with you this morning. How are you? Very well. What's the crack? Uh, not much. Quite, quite. We actually, we've got like the... The most decorated footballer we've ever had in the studio is coming in today. Three-time Olympic medal winner, a World Cup winner, playing with Shelburne now. Yeah, it's a hell of a story. I was trying to think if we ever had anybody who's had... We had Rude Hullet in the studio once. Yeah. That was like definite. Show me your Olympic medals, Rude. That was... Uh, yeah. He's, yeah. Have we had John O'Shea? Would be the only one I could think of with like as many high-quality medals. Yeah. Yeah, in, in in this actual studio. I don't think John O'Shea has... Has he been in here? I think he might have been once. Okay, yeah, so that definitely counts. He's a contender. Yeah. So that, After I, that, I don't know. A lot of people with a lot of appearances, but few to match the, the trophy hall of, of Heather O'Reilly. Are we counting Roy Keane being at the Borgosh Energy Theatre as being in studio? Well, I mean, I think the, that was the two was in the question the there, you know. Um, possibly, I mean, then, then there's your winner and obviously his... Uh, his co-presenter and the night, Gary Neville, uh, would be uh, in that rarefied air as well, obviously. So, about him. Yeah, yeah, he was, yeah fair uh, enough. He was a pretty good footballer. Um, there's big news coming through from the GA world. It looks like Davy Fitz, it's a, this kind of bubbled up yesterday. There's, there's more of it today in the papers. Davy Fitz is not a shoe-in, but is in advanced negotiations around the Waterford job. Mm. This is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. This is something that maybe you wouldn't have seen coming at the end of last season, even though it looked like Liam Cahill to Tipperary was going to be something that could easily have happened when you were thinking about the possible contenders to go into the Waterford job. We maybe hadn't really associated Davy Fitz with it, but it seems like he's willing to go back to the to the job he had between 2008 and 2011. For, for whatever reason in my head, it kind of feels like that three-year period was a lot longer than three years. It, it feels like a significant Does it, period. I would have said actually it was shorter. I, I, I didn't realise it was the full three seasons. I kind of thought it was a quick in, quick out. I kind of associate Davy Fitz with a, a lot of those mid-2000s teams. I don't know why. Like John Milan, I think Davy Fitz and obviously famously Davy Fitz versus John Milan after that as well. But uh, it just wasn't the case. Like, I mean, there was that that team came through under different management and kind of made their mark under different management. And maybe you could make the case that Davy actually got the tail end of uh, that great Waterford team as opposed to being there for the peak of it. Like you could say that 07 maybe was the peak of that Waterford team and maybe they just started to tail off after that. R04? Or 04, if you want to go back a little bit further before Kilkenny got really, really good. So uh, his, just kind of on, on review this morning, I'm not sure do I associate him with like an unbelievable level of Waterford success in the 2000s. So maybe he's going back with feeling that he's got a point to prove himself to the people of Waterford that he can even do better himself with, with the, the, the bunch of players that he'd have at his disposal. There's definitely, and like, I mean, it's, I think it's probably James Gale who's made this comparison with Jose Mourinho, is it? And it's not necessarily always a negative thing that you, once you get Davey in, you're hoping for success within the first couple of seasons. Um, because sometimes, and this happens with a lot of managers, to be fair, things just go stale and there's like radical new ideas that sometimes just run their course over the course of three, four years. So um, he is coming in to win the All-Ireland next year and uh, at worst, the year after. It's like that. that is what Waterford... I, I believe will think they can get because be, uh, they've been to an All-Ireland pretty recently they felt that they were going to be the, the ones to dethrone Limerick at the start of this year so they feel they've got something good going on right now and you could do a lot of you could do a lot worse than bringing Davy Fitz in to try and win right now 
How good are Waterford? That's the thing we don't know. Because mm. after the league, we were like, oh, okay, this looks good, mostly. And then flat, completely flat. Like, like they trained too much for the league, they take the league too seriously, or or they stopped believing. Like, remember, I don't know if you remember, the, the team leaked and everybody said, oh, something's wrong. I was like, that's not a big deal. And then it turned out something was wrong. Something had happened. Um, didn't seem like that big a deal. But obviously, people had been hearing stuff, and so something had gone wrong. I don't know. It's like a, it's a strong-willed group of <clears throat> of players who, <clears throat> pardon me, have a big reputation and haven't lived up to the reputation. So maybe Davy Fitz is exactly what they need. Yeah, the, like the reputation is to win in All Ireland. Is that what you're saying? That the, like their their reputation needs to be con- consistent contenders to, to win in All Ireland. Uh, well, their their reputation is that they're like an, a preternaturally gifted group who have within their capability uh, a level of hurling which is as good as anything that we've seen but they have yet to deliver that in the big days particularly against Limerick particularly in the Munster Championship mm. and th- this year was like desperately disappointing for them like it's I think we've overrated Waterford in recent years and we fall into this because they're so good to watch yeah like what, what I always think is like when you talk about like the uh, very very gifted bunch of players that they have that's true well, and what are we basing that on we're basing that on the fact that they won an under 21 All-Ireland in spectacular fashion uh, a, a number of years ago and that number of years has now clocked up to the point where those people should be top class seniors like that Limerick under 21 team that won in 15 and 17 has now translated into All-Ireland success All-Ireland dominance in the middle of those two years Waterford were the team so those players right now are of the same age as the, the Limerick players who are winning all around them you've had Tip and obviously Clare um, within the last 10 years winning under 21s and then going on to win All-Irelands as well uh, at senior level so it kind of the, the questions that kind of remain are around you know some of those great Cork underage teams that are still a little bit too young that'll come good over the next few years but then there's also the question of Waterford in 2016 does that team ever get a senior All-Ireland medal I think the hope back then was that they would be able to do it and they've had their opportunities and this year it felt like it was going to be the opportunity and I don't know like what, what happens if, if Waterford do live up to the league hype this year uh, like does it's, it's hard to tell me a great championship like yeah it feels like a, a ridiculous question to ask but like if you just imagine that that was, was real that the, the, the league form was real in a way that maybe like Kerry in the football league form was real and, and they end up going all the way like could they have been stylistically a good contender to Limerick had that form been real I don't know but we or would have seen totally them, fake we would have seen them play a lot like yeah. we would have seen them potentially play in a Munster final as well so like if you think about it if Davy goes in and has an impact next year you have Clare riding high you have Tipperary with their new manager who just was the Waterford manager yeah. Spicy you have the uh, three in a row All-Ireland champions and now you have Waterford as well and who knows what's going to happen with Cork but like that's going to be good 100% and Kilkenny are just coming off the back of running Limerick really close under new management as well and Kilkenny talk- and Galway can kind of ease themselves into it unless we see something good from Wexford it's a handy handy enough situation to be in you guys go over there knock the shit out of each other and we'll be here going oh maybe we should like take this easy because we're going to play again in the Leinster final yeah yeah c- kind of I'm, let's I'm, not kill each other is what I'm saying yeah that would, that would be a good agreement to there'll be a handshake to. between Derek Ling and Henry Sheffern for sure they're, they're, a I warm embrace or maybe maybe not maybe, maybe that would be uh, rather extraordinary if there wasn't one 
uh, like we talk about under 21s like Kilkenny are our current champions of that grade aren't they so in the next few years Derek Ling will be hoping to transform that into an All-Ireland senior success as well so kind of in the All-Ireland picture it, it's fascinating but like a strong Dublin in Leinster would make that very interesting to bring it back to what was it 18-19 when that's, we had that dramatic final day I think Leinster can still go there and I think a lot of Kilkenny people would tell you to kind of like F off with your you know Munster are the best uh, provincial Oh no I'm not, I'm not I'm just saying that they, they, it's great well like obviously Limerick are the best team in the country mm-hmm. but not by much it turns out yeah Kilkenny are pretty close to them and, and on their day I would expect Galway to be pretty close to them as well I don't I'm not saying that but I'm saying it's far more competitive over this side than it is this side unless there's some radical improvement in Dublin's fortunes and unless Wexford find a consistency which they have been unable to do in the last two years I think Wexford are going to be strong next year I hope you're right yeah I think they will be so it just comes down to me uh, to Dublin and uh, whether or not they're going to really put up a fight to, in, in those three games that are going to define their season next year in Leinster and, and make a, a championship out of it um, but yeah, Munster is obviously uh, fascinating with all the, the, the managerial changes as well. And like, it's it does feel at this, this time of the year though we get very excited about the following year's championship, and only sometimes does it live up to the hype. But I think maybe if we were having this conversation twelve months ago, getting excited for this year, I think the excitement was probably well placed. All right. So you're a fan of Davy to Waterford. Yeah, I, I like. I can see. I can see why they've arrived at this conclusion because they need. They believe that they can win next year. Who do you want to manage Dublin? I don't know who's in the mix for the Dublin job. I don't like. I mean, uh, this is kind of like a question that's kind of come out of left field here now. Uh, I hadn't really considered the uh, Derek McGrath. Is Derek McGrath in the mix for the Dublin job? I don't know. I know that he's done work in Wexford, obviously, but one of the the, the clubs in Wexford and has and Leash, I think, at one Leash, obviously, yeah. yeah. So you'd be good. It's a fair old John from Waterford to Dublin. Although the train is grand, it's fine everywhere. To Dublin's fine. Dublin's like a very well served urban centre. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if if everywhere to Dublin's fine, Dublin everywhere is fine. Don't, don't everywhere's fine but, uh, yeah. yeah so everybody should stop complaining about the travel um, uh, obviously Eddie Brennan would be no yep possibly in the, the mix as well like I mean these are the contenders that probably would have been uh, like forming a short list had we been thinking about uh, Brian Cody stepping away and obviously none of those things actually materialise whatsoever um, so the, the, the list is kind of long as your arm really Like, uh, but I suppose Eddie Brennan's kind of the only one of those ex-Kilkenny legends that is up for a gig, as far as I know. Like, I mean, uh, Henry Shefflin's spoken for. David Herity is spoken for. Uh, who else is in that? Uh, DJ Carey was mentioned last week, and I guess he's IT Carlo still going on, isn't it? It looks like Mikey Carey is going travelling for the year. That was uh, on the back of one of the papers. So that's not an immediate start that Derek Ling would have been looking for, somebody who's been uh, very good at that. If you're a Hurling fan and you want to have a say on this, let's hear from you. 087 9180 is the WhatsApp number. Or, of course, you can uh, get us at Off the Ball AM on Twitter. We're back to Vicker Street. It's the first time we've been in Vicker Street in a long, long time and it's going to be sensational. It's a celebration of women's football. It's a celebration of Arsenal. It's pouring over the coals. What's going on at Manchester United with Michael Owen and uh, we'll also obviously have some Liverpool chat with him as well. So uh, it's Ian Wright, uh, Michael Owen, Emma Byrne and Karen Carney are going to be our guests. And the proceeds on the night from the ticket sales will go to support women's football in Ireland. In uh, grassroots football, we're going to be buying gear for uh, women's and girls teams. otbsports.com forward slash events is uh, where you can get your tickets. It is next Wednesday, August the 17th, and it's going to be absolutely massive. Tickets are flying out for that one, so make sure you get on it right now. Uh, right, here's what's coming up between now and 10 o'clock. Ooh, the power rankings, the final power rankings of the season. We, like, it wasn't really, uh, we didn't do a lot of power rankings this season. It wasn't a very power rankings season. 
Well, that was because Kerry were winning and you would have been having to talk up Kerry every week. That's because you were just doing your know. bit for the Kerry Mafia. Um, Bought and sold, Sheehan. That's what I'm saying. They were number one for the entire year, to be fair. After that, at ten past eight, Graham Hunter is going to join us for You Had to Be There, which is our new regular slot, which is um, where we talk to people who were supposed to be working at events but were so transfixed by what they saw that they remembered why they fell in love with the sport that they cover for the, in the first place. Sports pages at 8.30. Kieran McGee is going to join us at 8.50, fresh from success at the Commonwealth Games and heading into the European Championships. Heather O'Reilly, as we've been talking about, um, multiple gold medal winner at the Olympic Games and a World Cup winner at 10 past 9 as well and then we're going to hear from Dan McDonnell about everything that's going on in the world of football at half past 9 OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish today interesting stuff in um, the uh, papers this week from Tommaso Shea who I thought we all thought was going to just be a shoe in for the Offaly gig but isn't going to take it in the end he's been talking maybe he's going back to punditry but he's been talking about the advanced mark and essentially agreeing with the premise that we had on the show the day after the All-Ireland Football Final when Owen wasn't here that uh, it's bollocks that it's um, it's basically turning the game into Australian rules I have some quotes from him here every team that has a good man inside is going to do well with it even if you don't you can still be cute to make the most out of it and you don't need to be lamping it from the half-back line it is not part of our game it is not our game it's like a free kick and the back has done nothing wrong. I still see confusion among players in matches when they don't know if it's a mark or not. Different referees referee it differently. Read the room was what he was saying. Get rid of the advanced mark. Now, you think, I mean, this is, this is interesting. This is somebody from Kerry who obviously just benefited from it massively at a key moment in the Ireland final when they were a bit under the cosh in that first half. They lamped the ball to David Clifford. Clifford, who's like a cheat code at this. Uh, I don't agree with Clifford getting two marks in the first half of the final, says Kerry's Mark O'Shea. Paul Ganey got one too, and they all went a long way to Kerry winning it because without them, they were struggling otherwise. Being at the game as a Kerry man, I was saying great when they got those points, but it is wrong, and it was unfair on the Galway backs. This guy knows what he's talking about. One of the greatest footballers of all time. Mm-hmm. He is. Yeah, he absolutely does know what he's talking about, by and large. I don't necessarily agree with it, though. And like I, I see... I'm, I'm feeling myself standing on the beach here and there's like a massive tide coming against me and I'm about to go out without uh, any sort of uh, armbands and try and swim against this tide. But I actually think the advance mark is okay. <laughs> I think the advance mark should stay. Hot take. I think Straight in with a hot take. That is as hot a take as you could possibly get on the advance mark. I think the advance mark should stay. I like. I think because that you're good at it. This is no, just no, pure no. carry bias, right? I think that we've got this guy. You're not going to change the rules. It's like this is now how the Dubs no. felt when Cluxton was like kicking the ball, and it was like, oh, you can't do that. They're going to change the rules just as you get good at it. No, I don't think it's like. But I think there's an interesting point that you made there, right? Actually, that um, the reaction to Cluxton completely transforming a position was oh these guys are winning let's try and find the rules to to try and knock it I think that this will become a topic of conversation because the team that have just won the All-Ireland have benefited from the advance mark more than any other team so I think that'll intensify the conversation around it because when a team's on top there will always be a conversation about to knock them down when Limerick won uh, their two in a row it was like how do we get rid of water breaks Paul Knurk has got a whiteboard therefore water breaks need to go that's what happens when a team wins you will try and find ways to change the game to ensure that they don't win the next year OK one quick point is that Tomas has been against it from the start in fairness so he's being entirely consistent so I'm talking this. about you I'm talking about you and Nathan the morning after uh, the All-Ireland uh, literally I've the first thing he says uh, uh, the morning after the All-Ireland was the advance mark needs to go how do we stop these guys from winning next year so uh, it's not about Tomas it's about you this okay. is personal fair enough fair enough yeah I, I'm fairly sure I was against the mark I, like 
I don't, I'm not a huge fan of Aussie rules, right? I, I just it never I never warm to it. I don't. I think our sport is better. I just it's a, like I understand that uh, I agree. It's gonna make me sound entirely parochial, but I prefer our version of the sport to their version of the sport. So do I. And we're like, no, they've got loads of great rules. Where if you if you cynically foul at one end of the field, it's like a free kick. It's a gimme free kick up the other end. I think that would transform our game. Uh, there's loads of other things that they do that we can steal from, but this this one doesn't make any sense to me at all. The thing that I have most of an issue with is the level of hyperbole that is around the advanced market, like saying that it's just like transforming the game into to Aussie rules. Like I think Jim McGuinness it, back in 2020 was saying that the uh, advanced market is a disaster uh, for Gaelic football and is killing the art of defending. And like that, that's my point is that that's the tone around the advanced market. This is this stain on the game that is absolutely destroying the game and. I can see the issues with it. I can see that when a player gets the ball on the 45-metre line and pings a 20-yard pass to his right and it's into the chest and he's in acres of space anyway and that gets a mark, I agree that that's not great. So that's why I'm lukewarm on it rather than saying this is the best thing ever. However, however, Graham O'Sullivan gets that ball on three occasions between the semi-final and the final and he looks up and he sees David Clifford. Before the advanced mark comes in, I'm not sure he's kicking any of those three balls. Like, he was on that same show with you the morning after the All-Ireland saying that Jack O'Connor encouraged him to kick more this season. And I'm like, that's great, brilliant. Cornerback comes up with the ball and he's not doing the classic thing of making the safe pass. He went to kick the ball in. He had the bravery to work on his kicking ends to, to kind of work on the mentality that's involved in going route one. And they did it and it worked on three occasions in the Dublin and the Galway game for them this season. And that happened because of the rule. And I think that's a positive thing. Did it happen because of the rule? Because if you, yes. if you listen to James O'Donoghue... Uh, Jack O'Connor was mad for kicking the ball. He was always about kicking the ball, always about the diagonal ball in. Like, you know, I don't think that... Uh, when did the mark come in? I 2020 was the first year. Okay. Um, Listen to Paddy Talley this week. Jack O'Connor's mad for kicking the ball. Like, that's a, that's a thing that he wants them to do anyway. Yeah. Why would they not have kicked the ball into David Clifford, who may then have been creating a goal opportunity as opposed to slowing the game down tapping the ball in his toe taking his time and we're like well this is fairly obviously he's going to kick it over because like- well, let's let's talk the goal opportunity opportunity thing first of all I think that what we actually what we've seen this year um, in Clifford's game is a movement away from the wild goal scoring opportunities that he manages to create by dint of the fact that he's got the ball in his hands now, what we saw at the end of 2020, after the advance mark was brought in, was David Clifford being this far away from scoring one of the best goals ever in a Munster Championship against Cork in the rain. And what he should have done is pop the ball over the bar. So what's actually happened there is that David Clifford has been told, I presume, you need to stop doing this. Yes, you're going to score an unbelievable goal every so often, but uh, we need to keep the scoreboard ticking along because if you'd taken your point that day, maybe Kerry would have got dumped out in the Munster semi-final. So I think that's actually what's after happening rather than this being some sort of reaction to the advance mark. Now, are you telling me that the big ball going into David Clifford and the, the high fielding and the, the, the kind of like the bursting out of the, the pack of Galway forwards and plucking that ball out of the air isn't a phenomenal thing to see? I think that's a brilliant thing to see. And it's not just the, the Kerry players. But why would they not, why would he not still do that? Because what'll happen is it'll be a bounce pass to a corner forward. Like, it, it's the type of kick pass that the advance mark requires, which is no bounce. And if you've got the ball outside the 45, you've got a sea of Galway people in, you've got to go high with it. Now, Jack O'Connor loves kicking, but, I mean, without the advance mark, the kick pass could be a bounce pass in front of the, the corner or forward. Or it could be the diagonal ball that, that 
that James O'Donoghue seems to have... It could be as well, but I, I'm, not, I'm not convinced that Graham O'Sullivan kicks that ball in on those three occasions without the advance mark. And Okay, but so those those three times in the, uh, however... Can I just give one more example? 160 minutes. Yeah, like. but one other example. Paddy Small in the Dublin Kerry semi-final. That was an unbelievable moment, the mark that he catches, where he's like sliding into the ground to catch it in his chest. If that the advance mark do, doesn't exist, it's like, let it bounce into me, turn around... Uh, like whatever happens next. Pop it over the bar, hand, hand pass it to somebody running through, and there's a goal chance. No, he's got to like get out. He probably gets gobbled up by a defender or something. Maybe, I, maybe I, I don't know what happens next. But either way, my point is that because of the, the rule hasn't led to a muting of exciting moments, I think it's actually helped to create some exciting moments that we ordinarily wouldn't have had. And it's not just Clifford. As I say, Paddy Small had a brilliant one. Now, I accept that there's a whole host of ones that happened, especially during the league, where guys are picking it up just outside the 21 in a wide enough position and they're free and it's popped in. And I don't know how you fix that. That's not great. I accept that. I can't defend that. But I just think that the, the whole backlash to the advance mark has just been a little bit overblown. The whole idea that it's like destroying, that it's a disaster, that it's killing the art of, of defending or that that level of language around it, I, I just don't think is, is, I don't agree with Why it. do we need it? Why do we need it? We need it because there was a preponderance of uh, short passing that was uh, slowing down the pace of attacking in Gaelic football. That's like, what I believe. But, uh, and and the people were harking back to the Jack O'Connor days where they would lump a ball in on, on top of Kieran Donaghy. And what had happened was that teams had reacted to that and was like well this is pretty easy to defend because you let him get the ball then you go in when he's on the ground as soon as he comes down you're at your most vulnerable and what happens is the game evolves and good coaching comes in and better uh, attacking play happens and like no the, good the, coaching comes in and then they're like don't kick the ball in the best all Ireland finals right that we've ever it. seen Dublin and Mayo didn't have the advance mark in it like that's a where, where did that argument come out of? Like the, I don't, the, point, the point is that the game evolved. So people complained about uh, Donegal arriving with their whatever it was, right, and killing the game for years, and everybody copied it. Bad, bad club team, bad club coaches, because everybody can put fifteen men behind the ball. Yeah, and then slowly the game responded. Dublin had their like wide V formation where the midfielders end up in the the two corner flags, and suddenly. Teams don't know how to defend this because there's a basketball influence. Mm-hmm. And it literally produced the best football yeah. we've ever seen. Yeah, it did. We didn't need the advance mark to produce the best football we've ever seen. However... I'm not saying we did. Clowns clowns and clubs around the country and bars were like, Jesus, we need to get the advance mark. We need the mark. The, the mark and, and there's the rules in this great deal. Hey, fetching. And then... It, what axiom was that? Can you put like a pin on the map? No, no. No pins. Yeah, no pins. It's like Cavan meets Tipperary. No, 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 no. Don't share a border. It's inside your head. It's the voice inside your head. Yeah. That's what it is. It's your inner monologue. The 2017 All-Ireland Final That's would not have been affected rules. by the advance mark. That's the rules. I just see it teach a car. It's great. The 2017 All-Ireland Final would not have been affected by the advance mark. It might have like created Could have been ruined. Who knows? It could have been improved. Who knows? It could not have been improved. These games... But like, your, your point is it's just complete... It's a complete red herring. It's like... There was a great game that existed once upon a time. Not and then once upon a time. Like, Literally in response to the problem... The game had evolved, but at the same time, the rules makers were like four years behind going, this clock's not taking short kickouts. Well, how do we stop that? It's terrible. So what they did was they came up with the midfield mark, which has been a success. I don't think hear anybody complaining about that. I happily do without it, right? Would you, would you actually? Well, actually would get rid I think of all the marks. I think that's improved the game. Whatever, whatever. Okay, I, I, like, I'm, not, I'm not a complete refusenik on this. If you want to keep the midfield mark, keep the midfield mark. But the advance mark and the defensive mark, like... Play on! It's a game! We're playing! Don't stop the ball! You're not the referee! You didn't play the whistle! There's no whistle! It's like, oh, I put my hand up and I'm like, 
I'm the king of all I survey. I stopped the game. <laughs> Look at my works. He might in despair. I might take my ball and go home now. Like, what? <laughs> Play the game. There, there are moments when it, it is it is kind of ridiculous where it, 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 the game just gets stopped. But then there, on the flip side, I do believe that there are teams who are like, screw it. Really, it there's, there's a big upside to my man inside catching this ball, so I'm going to kick it in. And the encouragement of that long kicking into the full forward line, I think, is to be... What, happened, uh, what happens? Like At some point, somebody's going to kick six marks in an All-Ireland final and it'll be like and it'll be the winning and losing of the game we'll be like is that really what we want do you know what do you know what'll happen here is it, like say if we, if we put this through like an alternate universe generator if the advance mark came in next year and we were having this argument in five years time you'd be like Shane Walsh played really well in the 2022 All-Ireland final and there was no advance mark back then and it would be as just a ridiculous point as you made about the 2017 no, it's final. Not. It, is I, that look at Shane Walsh thriving and playing one of the, the greatest individual performances in an All Ireland final we've ever seen, while the advance mark exists? But like these two things can coexist: great free flowing open football, and also the the sort of unlocking of a full forward who is being surrounded by a million opposition defenders. Like the, the, these two things can both work in unison with one another. I I uh, I see the point that you're making. I think that um, the game had already evolved beyond the requirement for the advance mark, and so we brought this rule change in, and it has completely altered the texture of how teams are playing in a way that I don't think adds to the spectacle in a meaningful way. You think him coming out and catching the ball is great. I think him coming out and catching the ball is great. I'd love to see the damage that that causes, where that long ball takes out whatever number of defenders and suddenly there's two on two inside but instead of us seeing the excitement of what might happen the goal chance the scramble the save the goal we're like it's a free kick and and everything slows and everything stops and he kicks the ball over and the defence is already reset and it's like okay the defence you get you get a double advantage because you can build your press knowing he's going to score that we're already in our defensive formation it actually it has a knock-on impact to the next three and a half minutes of play and it slows the whole thing down. And we're, what we want is high pace. What, what would happen is the high ball goes in, they see a dominant full forward who is most likely going to catch the ball. They're like, right, let him get it. As soon as he hits the ground, all four of us are coming around him. We're swallowing him up and it'll be a free out. If that's that's if, what will happen. If there's four of them back there defending this one player, then there's space out the field and the long ball doesn't get kicked in. So it and the game had evolved already to the point where we were seeing really exciting football. So you didn't need it. But occasionally when you can counterattack and you can hit that long ball in, you hit the long ball in and the goal comes off it. Whereas what's happening is the the forward is deciding I'm going to play the percentages, take my point, take my time, use this mark to get into the game or whatever it is and I'm I'm not taking the goal opportunities. I think Kerry would have scored goals off maybe I think Kerry would have at least created goal chances off some of the marks that they've made. But you're not going to, you don't need to try anymore because, as you say, they're not conceding goals. They've got a brilliant defensive structure. And if they score 17, 18 points, whatever the figure Jack O'Connor had in his head was, oh, we'd be hard beaten if we scored this number. Was it 20 points? Might have been less than that. But, like, that's actually, we're going to see a, a, a chased game where it'll be 20 points to 16. Um, and it's a good game, but it's kind of bloodless. Still think though, in a bloodless slash chased environment, goals are at a premium, and they will be. There's still a massive incentive to teams. So, like I, I, I think that a lot of those marks that that Clifford would have got this year would have been in situations where he turns around and there are there is like a wall of bodies between him and the goal. The, the other thing I just want to say is like when McGuinness was talking about this in 2020, he said it would make sense if the kick was outside the 65. 
that would have then you would have a booming ball and then the other rule you've got to catch it over your head like so this is some of the stuff that's been said about it in the past by people who think that the advanced mark is a disaster that like it's not like if he if he's saying it's an adva- the advanced mark is a disaster and also saying it would make sense if the kick was outside 65 that can't be a disaster it's just 20 meters away from being something that works so like I, it just feels like the, 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 the um, okay. You can, as I said, the tide is coming in, and everybody's like, "This is crap. This is awful. This is the worst thing that that's ever happened." And I'm just not sure that it is. All right. To be honest, okay. OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Uh, now, Leader Kicking are hosting American football kicking events across Ireland this August. This is a brilliant competition, right? If you want to be on the pitch at the Aviva at halftime, kicking then we have the thing for you. So in Dublin on the 13th and 26th of August, in Galway on the 14th, in Cork on the 20th, in Limerick on the 21st, and in Belfast on the 25th, there's a kicking competition where you can go and see if you can kick in American football. And uh, this is for uh, males and females aged 16 and above. The first one is on uh, this weekend. So what are we at? Today's the 11th. So it's this weekend. And the first one is on out in the um, sports campus. Uh, The... Prize is return flights for two to Chicago and tickets to a Northwestern American football game. And the search is for Ireland's Kicking King. This is all organised by Tig Leader, who was part of the kicking competition that we did last uh, Monday in Vincent's. I don't. I didn't hear who won yet. Do, how, do we know who won between Josh and Shane Walsh? It was probably just Tommy. Well, that's the the rumour is Tommy Rooney actually won, even though you know he wasn't taking part. Apart from his very short John Mon esque short shorts. Have you, have you seen the photographs? If you haven't seen the photographs, go and check them up. Uh, yeah, so other prizes include free tickets to the Erlingus College Football Classic and an opportunity to kick at halftime in front of 50,000 people at the Aviva on the 27th of August. To take part in the event, uh, uh, click on an event near you to sign up. So yeah, we'll we'll share the social for that as well. It's 7.59. Up next, it's time for Owen's definitive 2022 football power rankings. Some of these critics, these pundits. I absolutely adore them, lads. I have unbelievable time from, but they're, they're a great bunch, but it's not acceptable. I'd like to play the hard man when, when they're on it. It's not very pleasant when you're trying to manage a team. All you're looking for is a bit of civility and a bit of decency, but they just dismiss you like, like you know, you have nothing to do with the bloody occasion. There you go. Yeah, we're uh, just doing it on the contenders for next year. So is this like a 2022 power rankings, or is it actually like a little bit of a... 2023 power rankings I think it's probably more the, the latter than the former and I've just put together like the 12 contenders on this so uh, Ooh, who didn't make the list Meath and Cork right fair enough <laughs> maybe Meath will be a contender well Colin O'Rourke is uh, already like who is this fella who is he yeah good question nobody will be able to tell him the answer to that and Cork as well obviously famously who have liked to talk up in the past maybe just they don't make the top 12 like I mean it's not not exactly again a very very hot take very lukewarm stuff so far in the GEA for this morning the power rankings number 12 Ross Common number 11 Arclair number 10 Arkildare number 9 Monaghan number 8 does it change depending on who the manager is I've fa- factored into yeah it, it could change if they get a very very good manager like if Jim Gavin comes out of uh, retirement and like a zombie version of Jim Gavin's in charge of uh, of uh, Monaghan then straight to the top of the power rankings what but, if Jim went in as number two to jail that would be interesting wouldn't it uh, like uh, that, is that if he ever comes back into football that could be the role that he would slot he's into he's done everything right and there'd be less pressure less amount of time none of the logistics you're just showing up and imparting some wisdom 
could uh, Jim Gavin do the Pat Gilroy thing of going in with the hurlers just let everybody else do the hurling coaching and he's the, the mastermind behind it all maybe that was that's that's what you'd be doing if you were the Dublin County board wouldn't you or yeah or like I mean we were talking about Davey earlier like I know he, he'd been loosely linked with, with Dublin I don't think there was any uh, much substance to it but that could have been a good shout either the Dublin hurlers basically that's the, the next attractive gig um, where were we Donegal are in at number 8 does that depend on who they get it does. Like Donegal is an interesting one, where they've had so much disappointment over the last ten years, really. And I wonder, does this year sting as much as any of the others? Like, so twenty twenty obviously was bad when they lost to Cavan in COVID. But I still think no matter what would have happened, I think they get beaten by Dublin anyway. Yeah, but they put up a good game this year, though. And that was their. That was like that was a Dublin team as we now know that was on the wane. That was like. It still, beats fumes. it still beats Donegal I, I think they do I think they do beat Donegal But they get a much better game Than they did against Cavan My point is that this year Donegal They get the extra time Against Derry They don't have A lot of people have said They didn't have like The balls to go for it later on Like I mean They had the ball in, They had the ball in their hands And three didn't minutes. get one last shot off yeah. um, In normal time wasn't it So Criticism last year Of Derry Of Derry Yeah so They should Basically I think Donegal people Will think that they had Every opportunity to win that game And everybody was fit Everybody was fit. That was the big thing. Have we ever seen McBrady and Murphy playing together, and McHugh and all these players? And this year that we did, we saw what they were what they were capable of. And then, and their path to Sam was Claire Galway Kerry, which I think is actually an easier path than what 2020 would have been. Beat the Dubs. I don't think they do. So, I think this year could have actually been the one that stung the most for Donegal. And I don't think there is a team in football at the moment that has such a chasm between its floor and its ceiling. And unfortunately, they've been closer to their floor than their ceiling too often. So this is a team at number eight in these rankings who could be looking up at Kerry and thinking, we're not that far. We could we could knock them off their perch if we've got them in a knockout game next year. And I like it may, maybe seems ridiculous to say that in, in the context of this year, but that's that's the talent that they have. What did you think of um, Paddy Talley's point about this? Is, I don't know if you've all heard the football pod, but Paddy Talley, brilliant interview with uh, Tommy, James and Paddy on the um, football pod this week about his own career and also just kind of really looking forward to next year where everybody is on the same rota of games once they get through the provincial championships Mm. that uh, at that point there's no advantage and there's no disadvantage he thinks it's actually better for Kerry to have more regular games yeah I also would be concerned about it's like oh wait till we see but actually they're going to benefit from the games because they need those games Um, and no more undercooked also as well Kerry that's where the Munster champion being in the Munster championship will really benefit them because they'll get their one seed they'll be more, they'll be more likely to get their one seed than Donegal will for example or somebody in Connacht Kerry and Dublin will probably be number one seeds but then on top of that they get the same games in the All-Ireland series as the Ulster and Connacht team so it's a win-win for Kerry and Dublin I think uh, next year that new system Donegal they got uh, pips at the at the post really by Mayo at the end in 2019 so it's hard to know how that will benefit them and Mayo could be a team that, that will enjoy that and they're in at number 7 in these power rankings I think Mayo could do well in that new system next year uh, I've put Tyrone in at number 6 so I think this is probably where these are not 2022 power rankings because I don't think Tyrone could possibly claim to be a top 6 team on the evidence of this year's championship but I don't think you can possibly claim that it can be that bad again next year now the thing is is the reason that they were so bad the people that walked away from the panel and there's no reason to suggest that it's many of them are going to come back next year or is the reason they were so bad is because they went on holidays late and it's, it's hard to do back-to-back All-Irelands I think it's, it's a bit of both but I think the second factor is a factor I also yeah I think it's more likely the uh, hangover than 
definitely the, the strength and depth wasn't there this year that they had in previous years but I suspect that Tyrone club football is good enough that they'll be able to find a bunch of young players who will come in absolutely mad keen to influence it now whether or not the team who won the All-Ireland still has the same desire that's the question that they have to answer over the course of the winter to do the hard training and to show up and be like as emotionally invested in winning an All-Ireland now that they've done it if they can get that back then I actually think I, a lot of people come out of that game going they're a shit team aren't they? they they don't really deserve to win the All-Ireland I, I disagreed like yeah. they beat the Kerry team who I think are a really good Kerry team mm-hmm. in the semi-final and they just handled their business I, I agree with that actually I think Tyrone like I, I was not saying that afterwards I thought Tyrone were a very very good team and really well coached beautiful footballers really smart on the ball heads up athletic incredible bench that was the I mean that was definitely something that um, was noticeable so I'm not writing Tyrone off at all the question for them next year is does Rory Canavan start and does he come straight into proceedings as a superstar forward in the way that some former under 20s have done pretty much straight away he looks like he might be able to like he looks like maybe he's maybe naturally just a, a little bit uh, bigger than Dara not as tall but just maybe maybe early in his career able to hold off a shoulder maybe a bit more I don't know I've, I've only kind of like seen him play for his county uh, at underage level this year which but was pretty good it was it was absolutely sensational so like if he comes in and he is ready like that's a caveat if he is ready uh, next year to, to be a starter in that team then I think that that transforms our season and we can speculate about what managers might come in but we know that this guy will come through for Toronto next year yeah and like it, Obviously, it's the, the under-20 age group. If it was an under-21 group... You'd be more certain. Definitely. But even just to get more of those players through. But all of a sudden, those players are now going to training. And he was there this year at the very end. So like he's got he's got a sample of it. But his teammates as well yeah. are bulking up the numbers. And uh, that's where their strength and depth is going to come from. They might not all be ready for it, but they might be ready for 15 minutes. Yeah. And yeah. they're certainly ready for training. And we've seen what like the impact substitutions did for Tyrone in winning that All-Ireland last year as well. I've kept Derry ahead of them at number five. Obviously, they hammered them this year. I'm not sure if that's going to be relevant going into next year. But I'm not sure if I'd subscribe to the theory that this is going to be like a one-and-done year for Derry. I'm not sure they're going to win back-to-back Ulsters. But I, th- I still think it doesn't matter. I think that uh, everything they'll have taken from this year will have been huge. And it still feels that they were ahead of schedule this year as well. I, actually, I think I've actually just told him one of Paddy Andrews' lines. I think he said that multiple times in the football pod. That they, winning an Ulster was probably ahead of schedule for them this year. Uh, I'm not sure. I think that I think that we would have thought much higher of them if they'd had backdoor for the last two years. They would have had more games to show us exactly what they were. And they'd be further along in terms of their attacking structure. I, I think that like in Rory Gallagher's head... When he sat down the first day he got the job, he was like, I'm going to win Ulster within three years and then they've done it. Mm-hmm. Like, I think they think they're on schedule. And I actually, but I think that they um, were hamstrung by the lack of games uh, over, the, over the COVID period. And actually, I again also think that there's development to come from them. You know, I hate comparing them with Donegal, but it's such an obvious thing. Like, the speed at which they got there. Donegal got there a bit quicker Donegal had better forwards at the time but we'll see I, I again would be very confident I actually think they should be ahead of Armagh yeah so Armagh are in fourth and like Armagh and how close they came to Galway I guess is probably informing this a good bit but also the thing about Derry and maybe the ahead of schedule take is probably based on the fact that they're going to be playing Division 2 football again next year whereas Armagh are a bona fide Division 1 team at this point and uh, they've established themselves up there and they're um, them getting close to an All-Ireland semi-final this year made sense with everything we saw in the spring whereas it felt like Derry not sure that they overachieved but it definitely kind of was a bit more of a surprise so 
I would be backing Armand maybe to just go that bit further than Derry next year but I wouldn't be surprised if, if I was completely wrong on that and Armand would feel they could have got to an All-Ireland semi-final and like on on their side of things they probably might have felt they could have beaten Derry then um, like the thing is Galway Derry there was only four points between them at the end like uh, I kind of have it in my head that it was this complete blowout and it, it maybe felt like that at times but um, was it was it four in the end maybe maybe it was five but it wasn't anything major and I think that it's it's not terminal when you look at the gap between those teams next year which brings us on to team number three which is Galway, the Dubs are in at number two, and then Kerry in at number one. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what you think, but like, are, would most people have Galway's number two just because they were there in the All Ireland, or uh, do we think Dublin actually would have their number? I don't know. I think so much depends on who is playing for Dublin and who is managing Dublin. I I think. I'd be very surprised if Roy Joyce walked away, right? It hasn't yeah. been confirmed. I haven't seen it confirmed that he's staying, but I think I'd be really, really shocked if that was to happen. But you wouldn't be shocked if Desi was to walk away at this stage. And you wouldn't be shocked if he came back either. Yeah, no, you wouldn't be. And like, I guess maybe it's, it kind of feels like he's been there longer than Joyce, even though he hasn't. And like maybe the fact that he's got over the line in All-Ireland and... I don't know, Like, there's so much talk around Dublin next year as well with regards to some of the players that, that could come back into the side. So, um, Who, like, uh, you talk Mannion? Mannion. I don't think Mannion's coming back. You don't he's, think he's coming back? Well, he's he never made the sounds of, like, he wants to go back. He's, he's, he's made the sounds of a man who's enjoying his post-intercounty career life. Yeah, okay, fair. But Con O'Callaghan will, let's hope, be back. I hope so, but Con's fitness is never guaranteed. Like it, it, Because he's you know, such a highly tuned athlete... You get injuries, you know? Well, let, let me just put it this way then. Dublin being at number two is based on the fact that Dublin's forward line will be better next year than the one that played against Kerry. And if it's not, if it's the same forward line that played against Kerry, you might make a case that Galway could be ahead of them. Like, that's how pivotal those positions are for them. Like, I don't think Dublin's, def- Dublin's defence was actually outstanding at times in that All-Ireland semi-final. Like, James McCarthy with one of his best games and obviously there were some brilliant man-marking jobs done in that full back line. So it's it's just that scoring forward from open play that Dublin need to, to nail down next year. And unfortunately, when you've got a generational talent who's been on the sidelines for so long, their entire possibility of success is going to distill down to Conor Callaghan again next year. It's going to be deja vu. All right. That is the final episode of the Power Rankings. I absolutely adore them, lads. I have unbelievable time for them, but they're a great bunch, but it's not acceptable. Right, ahead of our Cabri FC Roadshow on the 17th of August, we're going to be deciding on the top five most influential Irish players in both the men's and women's game. A reminder that tickets for the show in Vicar Street are on sale now. Ticket proceeds will go towards supporting Irish women's grassroots football. Check out otbsports.com forward slash events for T's and C's and more. We will see you on the night after the break. It's episode three of You Had to Be There with Graham Hunter Selections. It was so unexpected. You had to be there. Covering Celtic at that time was a brilliant thing. The atmosphere at Parkhead was always great. You had to be there. Nobody ever talks about this game. Nobody saw it. Uh, you had to be there. Right, it is episode three of You Had to Be There. The simple premise is you're at an event for work and you fall back in love with the sport because you're witnessing something amazing. I'm very excited about this week. It's Graham Hunter. Graham, how are you? Well, equally excited, and I'm listening to your chat about the Dobbs, and I'm listening to the adverts there about sandals and socks. It's a very, it's a very witty station you work on. I do love, I do love this program, and I, I'd pay it to be a listener. Uh, never, than, never mind, just come on and talk about great games of football. Nevertheless, here we are, and I'm, I'm ready for whatever you've got to throw. And Bosnich, I'm, Bosnich doesn't get a mention. I'm sorry. Okay, no. fair enough, fair enough. Um, maybe just because you weren't at the game. I mean, obviously, if you had been. Me- you might, you might- <laughs> Could be, could be. I've had some moments with Bozzy, but anyway, let, let's let's reveal the picks. Okay, the right. You can keep, keep those for your book. Um, 
Alex Ferguson in 1999 at the Champions League final. This is um, this is your first one. So obviously, people will be familiar with the fact, and, and maybe there are some younger listeners who aren't. But uh, Bayern, Bayern Munich are uh, winning the game in stoppage time, and Manchester United scored two late goals to win it in Barcelona at the Camp Nou, and. Um, you, you could have picked a load of different people, I suspect, from this. Why Ferguson? There, there's a, a little bit of bias. But also, I was answering um, when one of your colleagues, one of your team came on to me, I was answering the idea, because you, you introduced it by saying it's a very simple concept. I, I don't think it is, because if you're asking people who are fortunate enough, privileged enough to be paid to be at gigantic sports events about moments or people's or people, individual people or or game that takes their breath away and makes them go, yeah, look, this is this is what it's all about. This is why I love the sport. This is why I'm in this profession. When you become overwhelmed and taken to a different place, then I, I need to deal in the fact that, you know, for, for my, I'm the Daily Mail's chief reporter that day. I'm at Camp Now. I've followed Manchester United in all their competitions towards a potential treble to the Camp Now, to a city where... I love, I'm not yet planning to live there, but I'm, I'm, I'm just the stadium, the camp now is, is phenomenal. And he, to me, he's still subconsciously, but it emerges during the game, particularly in the latter seconds, he's still the Aberdeen manager. There's no skulls, no keen. I've been in Turin for the semi-final and seen a club and a fan base who were remorseless. They were un, uh, impermeable, unbeaten, applaud Manchester United off the pitch in Turin. But they go there without two absolutely central players against an equally remorseless team that people forget. Bayern Munich were tilting for the treble too. You know, they won that night. They had one domestic trophy still to win, which they then they did go back and win. It was their treble, and you know he plays um, Beckham in midfield to try and cope with the absence of Keenan Scholes, but also to finally answer what Beckham's been tugging at his sleeve for months. Uh, boss, boss, I'm a, I'm a better central midfielder than I am at the right. And and what happens is that, you know, this tired, um, pretty drained squad that doesn't perform, and no matter what Alex Ferguson has said subsequently about, the, you know, we were always on top, I always thought we were playing, people have exaggerated how much Byron... Bayern could have won it by a street. Manchester United didn't represent themselves particularly well. But he juggled. It won, he, at that stage, it wasn't simply the the gambler's instinct that was going to see him through. He juggled options. He eventually moved Beckham back to the right. He eventually gets Sheringham and Solskjaer on, not to add to Colin York, but to supplant them. And... He frees up um, Schmeichel. Maybe it seems obvious to, to go on his big rangy run up to the box because everything then is, you know, the it's all or nothing. And, I, and I'm sitting there, having seen Alex, having known him individually, having seen him do special things for my club where you're like, I'm not quite sure how or why this is happening, but it keeps happening around Alex Ferguson. And that night in the camp now was overwhelming because of the, the noise, the heat, the, the fact that I'd never been at a match, reporting on a match, which potentially could bring a treble for anybody before. It seems to be gone. You, you're under terrible pressure to be writing a thousand words. You're asked to file all thousand words 15 minutes before the final whistle. So the, the newspaper has everything set, the words, the headlines, the pictures with about, you know, setting it takes five minutes. So... 10 minutes before the end of the match, it's Bayern with the treble, bad night for a thousand words. 
And gosh, they, they, you know, Ferguson, um, when Steve McLaren, we don't know at the time, but you can see the activity in the dugout when Steve McLaren's going great extra time, start playing for, for extra time. I don't know what's going down in the dugout, but what's patently clear is that Manchester United from top to bottom, starting from their manager, are like, never mind. It wasn't just on the touchline, it was in the pitch too, because of everything he taught them, everything he'd imbued in them, the type of player he, that he bought. The every single player in red were like, we're still time to win it. We will win it. And they did. And it wasn't a fluke. And it wasn't because Bayern collapsed in football terms. And it took me out of, you know, I was, I was doing my job, which felt pressurised. It felt a big responsibility. In the end, what I did in, in the minutes from sharing and scoring where you're starting to rewrite and you've got people screaming at you from London saying the entire cities, there are cities that won't get this edition of the paper unless you, and you're typing and you're thinking and you're watching and this, this bit's off the record. So if you can cut this out, <laughs> there's a tear. I can't see the screen properly because the, the bear with me. The Aberdeen manager is about to win the Champions League. That You asked me about a moment that takes you out of it's just a job I'm working here. And the combination of that witch's brew was as powerful, as impactful as I've ever been present at in, in anything in my career. It subsequently genuinely did change everything about my life because of who read the report that I wrote. But it was about Fergie coping, reacting, everything he taught people over the years of being their leader, their monster, their their sergeant major. And it was just simply a moment of transcendental pressure, magic, beauty. And I don't really expect to be present at anything like it again. That's the forging of diamonds, I believe. They, they talk about pressure situations like that. And so um, you just slipped it in casually there. Who who read the report that changed your life? Well, I, I don't know that anybody's you know, <laughs> listening is going to be interested, but Vic Wakeling was head of Sky Sports and he was at the game, obviously, producing the event for Sky. Way back in his career, he'd been a print journalist. So he told us um, a couple of months later when he had a big dinner for all the football correspondents at the beginning of the new season, that he'd, he'd got up, got his breakfast at the Princess Sophia Hotel at the top of their street leading at the camp. Now, went to the airport a bit glum, a bit forlorn, because he expected to pick up the first editions of new English newspaper, British newspapers in the airport to read Bayern when the travel, or Bayern to take the treble away, United flop and that, because often in the past, for those who don't remember it, if, if things didn't happen soon enough for first editions of newspapers, then... Many, many match reports were just completely wrong because the, the print button was pressed and the lorries rolled so that far-flung places could get an addition even if the sport was wrong. And he told me in front of my colleagues that he went to the airport, picked up the, the mail. He happened to be a, a mail reader because he'd worked for the mail pass, picked it up. And, and he literally said that he, he was, you know, as proud as he'd ever been or reading a British newspaper ever. Now, his values might be different from everybody else's, but he picked it up, and I, I had something about Manchester United, uh, Manchester United last night producing the football version of turning water into wine, and the top 500 words that I'd smashed out in about five minutes read as if 
I'd had time after the match to write about Manchester United's greatness. The headline was good, obviously, and, and the, the pictures were, had been changed to reflect Sheringham and Solskjaer. And he, he, he tapped me on the shoulder and, and said what he thought about that type of writing and came after me and offered me work. And when I moved to Spain, he was the one who said to one of the people organising Spanish football, phone Graham and get him involved in Revista de la Liga, which led to a reason to to stay in Spain, where I'd gone without any you know real language skills, maybe in English or Spanish, people might argue, no contacts, no money, no, no real prospects or career path. And Revista, when early in my first summer in, in Spain, Revista was a reason to, to stay in and a, and a possibility of doing something interesting. And it became something really rewarding and glorious. We're still, I'm, I'm working in Helsinki now for the European, you know, the UEFA Super Cup. And I'm working with people who are like, God, oh, it's terrible. As a kid, I used to watch you and I can't believe and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I know, I know. I can't, listen, I have to balance all this nonsense out with, with a dig at myself. Otherwise, it wouldn't be me. But, Jared, that, that literally was life-changing. Uh, I think you came on here saying this was really difficult but you, you've made it look effortless in terms of uh, smashing it out of the ballpark with the first one okay so we, we totally accept Ferguson uh, in 99 in the Champions League final that's um, a sensational bit there Fran in 2004 this is going to seem hipster to people but w- what's the story with this so the four Xavi and Iniesta in particular a messy reteach the world what I suppose Billy Brenner and Kevin Keegan had, had taught them and John Giles early on he was this little man and he was slight he was very small and he was playing in this um, super depot site whereby a completely regional there's going to be a, a gratuitous mention of Aberdeen again a completely regional you know a fishing port far up the ferocious north of Spain with, with a not particularly big population base is ploughing its way through Spanish football. They've won the league in recent seasons. They've won the cup on the centenary of the cup day on Real Madrid's birthday in the Bernabeu against Real Madrid. And in in this edition of the Champions League, they've progressed to play AC Milan, the reigning champions of Europe, and Chilotti's team with Seedorf and Gattuso and Perlo and Shevchenko. You probably don't know these guys. It's a really Italian-based story. You know, Sheva and, and Kaká and all this kind of it's, it's a quite a good team. And I'd been in San Siro, whatever it was, two weeks before, where Deportivo La Coruña had led. And then Kaká in particular, but Sheva and Pirlo had just, as David Coleman would say, opened their legs and showed their class. And suddenly it was 4-1 against Deportivo La Coruña in Milan. And it shouldn't have been that because throughout that game they put, and you kind of think in your head, well, wow, all right, they, they, that margin's wrong, that scoreline is unfair, but maybe, you know, football hierarchy is just shuffling and, and the, you know, the, the, the spine uh, is just getting back into place. That's the way it is. And Deportivo La Coruña, take them to the Riasor on a, a, a lovely night in, in La Coruña, up in Galicia, and from the fifth minute when I think it was Pandiani who opened the scoring, they ran Milan off their legs. Spoiler, they win 4-0 to go through 5-4. But Fran is the little guy who padded around. I'm not saying he wasn't fast enough to say it felt like his feet never touched the ground. But he definitely padded around and went into little spaces whereby Milan, who were already looking at each other and looking to Ancelotti on the side going, what's happening? Because everybody else 
for Depor was just buzzing about and whirring. And the rear saw, which felt like a, a, a pretty old-fashioned sort of tin or corrugated iron-based stadium. People were banging on the corrugated iron. The stadium was jumping up and down. European champions were reeling. And at the heart of it was this little maestro who was just going, right, well, Milan are dazed and dazzled. I'm going to poke them and torment them and prod them and then score the fourth goal. When when they're through on away goals, because those beautiful things existed in those days. So at 3-0 up, because they scored in Milan, they're already through. And Fran just goes, show, show me where, where, where's the cake? There's the, there's the cherry right on top. We love that Deportivo team here in Ireland because Shelburne played against them in that Champions League and drew nil all in the old Lansdowne Road before it got redeveloped. And then it was nil all at half time in the second leg in the Riazor and then Depor win 3 0 in the second half. So I think um, a lot of people. That's frustrating for you because it could have been Shells doing that to Milan. I, you know, <laughs> had, it literally, it probably should have been. So that that's one of the reasons I raised this. Yeah. Very good, very good. So, Fran, that's also brilliant. Uh, Leo Messi, I mean, I, I guess the, the other thing that happens is that uh, the world's focus comes to Barcelona and you're right there watching this 17 year old kid progress. Is the 2009 final the one that you've picked because that's his masterpiece? It's out of um, the most difficult panorama to try and say one moment when Messi took me out of myself and said, look, this is why football's beautiful, why it's the best sport ever invented, why you love it, why this, this kid from 60, 1963 is still childlike with enthusiasm in 2009. So to pick it and, and even to try and argue one night was Messi's masterpiece would be infantile on my part. But what probably hasn't come out over the twenty-something years we've known each other is I'm I'm extremely chippy, you know. It, it literally is what drives me. So I've been watching Messi for a handful of years. It was already clear in 2009 that we were talking about somebody with genius-like ability. But at that stage, irrespective of Spanish football being very uh, popular in, in UK and at that stage I didn't know the Irish scene quite so well and I don't think there were as many doubters but there was a raft of people in Fleet Street going yeah, yeah too much Messi, he's never scored against an English team and they quoted I don't know six, or maybe six or seven incidents where like for example although when he played Mourinho's Chelsea um, at Stamford Bridge in the mud when Rijkaard's Barcelona won on the night when Asiel Delorno tried to remove Messi's leg with studs in about, you know, the area that he can reproduce children with. He'd been so outstandingly brilliant that night that whether he scored or not wasn't really the question. So going into the Rome final and going into Rome final where Manchester United probably got their team selection wrong, where Manchester United were still a really impressive eleven. When it's when it's, it's Fergie, you're thinking, well, gosh, I wonder if Barcelona will wobble. I wonder if, having seen what happened at Stamford Bridge, you know, maybe this Barcelona side is is a year or two off the. And that night, Messi um, 
loves the ball. It's boiling hot. We subsequently know, so I'm not claiming knowledge at the time, that the players are in pieces when they come out. Pep Guardiola has arranged a gladiator-style video of showing them all the tough moments of the season, all their kids and wives are in there to the gladiator music and all this kind of stuff. And in the dressing room, the players have subsequently told us they're in tears. They come out, they're, they're half beaten before they stand on the pitch. And for five, six, seven, eight, nine minutes until PK and a bit of Valdez repel um, Cristiano Ronaldo from, from United taking the lead. From that moment onwards, there's heroics from, you know, a, a three quarters unfit in Iesta and a three quarters un, unfit Henri and they score the open goal without Messi's involvement, the opening goal. But he plays as if this Champions League final against a really good side is, is a mere nothing to him. And then he caps the, the performance with, I've often asked Xavi about what, you know, only 1-0, where they're distinctly superior, but only 1-0, you couldn't, the final can go like that against a, a Cristiano Ronaldo side. What did you cross the ball to Messi for? There's Van der Sar, who subsequently, the poster of that moment, will, will, will show him looking, you know, with boggle-eyed, I can't even do an impression, where he's like, what's happening? And it's between Rio Ferdinand and Vidic, to towering, you know, monstrous, monstrously big footballers. And this little Leo Messi, who could, they could probably fit in their socks along with the shin pads. And Xavi looks up and goes, I know what I'll do. I'll put it to the five foot seven guy. And he goes, well, he's the best header on the pitch. He's the best header in the club. He's not tall, but the natural thing was, if I had the ball on the right, I'd pop it over to him. And he, and he gets up and, and the ball's laid between the two defenders. How has he got that space? And he gets up. And literally, I don't care if you've got a, a geophysicist or some open university professor of, you know, geometry. He shouldn't have been able to head it back over Van der Sar. It should have been physically impossible. But he does. And, and the moment is so special for him that his boot, his foot, the bones in his foot contract, like you often see, I'm sad to say, in car crashes where you see bits of, shoes and sometimes clothes or glasses strewn over where the, the, in, in moments of crisis the musculature of the human body contracts and Messi's boot just slips off because he's gone I'm going to score it's a Champions League final and he, and he lands and, and picks his boot up in one movement and runs off and you're like like the Fran moment it's just like crowning crowning glory that night and it felt that there you are we actually had the picture up there of him holding the boot, celebrating the goal. I, I had no idea why he was holding the boot. I didn't realise that it, it popped off, but um, the the athleticism... Yeah, it literally just dropped off. And because I'm a little bit Celtic and I'm taught to do Celts, you get spiritual moments where you're like, aha, this this was all meant. I suppose Chavi did mean it, so did Messi, so maybe that's tautological. Yeah, there you go. Would he have crossed the ball if they were 1-0 down? Well, listen, I'm answering for him because I haven't asked him that question, but really, given the number of times I've talked to Xavi about that, I'd say yes. Um, if there was pressure on, on Messi, um, which he obviously didn't really feel or, or display, there was a lot of pressure on the Spanish team in the 2010 World Cup final because we had expected them to kind of win the World Cup from a, a long way out. What they were doing was uh, picking up the trophy that we had ordained for them I guess four four years previously when they didn't and could have and then two years previously they'd emerged as this okay now we're here and they was like well you have to win the World Cup now because you're the best team um, but you've gone for Iker Casillas next in the 2010 World Cup final where Spain beat the Netherlands by a goal to nil after extra time what was so special about Casillas' performance that night? Well 
I think people falsely remember it as not a terrific final because there's been so much build-up saying it's the Cruyff final where the Clockwork Orange, who are in the third World Cup final, surely will win one now. Surely they'll play better than they played during the tournament because they detracted quite fierce criticism from, from die-hard, high-church football experts in their own country getting to the final. But once there, the idea was that if, if you unleash Schneider and Van Fart and, and Rob and, and so on, they'll be great. And, and Spain have been growing and growing and growing from being defeated by Switzerland in the first match. No nation had ever won the World Cup, having lost the first match, so here they were. And a semi-final display against Germany, irrespective of what people think about the 1-0 against Portugal, the 1-0 against uh, Paraguay, the, the, the performance against Germany, 1-0 only, that had been just a glorious, you know, from me to you, from you to me, from me to you, game of football, back and forward with Germany going, right, we'll play you at your own game. And it was gorgeous to be there. And it was very entertaining. So I think I really thought that it's ill-remembered because there were buckets of goal chances. There might not have been long stretches of extraordinary play. And I have no qualms about saying, although I don't think it was Van Marwijk that ordered them to go out and do it. Amongst the Dutch players, they went, we will we will batter these little men. We will knock them off the stride and then we'll win. It had been done to them, I think, by maybe German sides across all their club, the domestic careers, and like, oh, this is the way we'll do it. And it was it was a terrible mistake. It was really ugly. It should have been sanctioned by three red cards, in my opinion, not just one, although I would admit that there might have been a Spanish red card too for Puyol. Um, but, the, but there were buckets of chances. And because of the way in which the, the Iniesta goal has been deified and the way he reveals his vest to pay tribute to Danny Harkey, a dead friend, and, and the fact that, you know, it's it's such a special goal and it's construction built from one end to the other. It's forgotten that throughout the game, Casillas plays really well. And Casillas also is, I'm on the I'm on the pitch, I'm, throughout the match, I'm given a, a pitch position to about 12 metres to the right of Spain's dugout. So therefore, I haven't often experienced a match pitch side and, and you could reach out and touch or talk to the substitutes as they warm up. But it's the World Cup final. I've lived with this lot for seven or eight weeks. And Casillas is, is not only playing well, but he's keeping them believing because at some stage, particularly in extra time, the, 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 the players' legs have turned to jelly. They've talked about this a lot. There's a fear of losing. There's a fear of going to penalties. But the key moment is when um, Holland are 11 men and they're starting to break they, 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 Robin has been unable to sh- shake off Juan Captavilla at, at Spain's left back and he's come into the middle and there's this moment where I think by memory, I haven't gone back and watched it, I think by memory Schneider is, is falling and snaps off a pass as he's falling which catches Spain out completely they're not only too high up but the centre halves are too wide and the ball goes through and it's it's Robin against Ica Casillas the previous season they've been teammates for Real Madrid so they've they've had this high noon Gary Cooper one-on-one stuff in training a lot. It's it's one of the things that's made Robin in, in those days a genuinely great footballer because he allied finishing to, to, to pace. And as they're going through, I, I, it, it's the only time in my career reporting sport where everything has stopped. People talk a lot about you just that feeling about it's gone slow now. And then it feels like slow motion. I genuinely... Because so much wanted the people I've been working with to win the World Cup, I thought my heart was going to stop, literally stop. And 
you're watching and I can't explain it must sound stupid how it feels as if it's it, and he goes through and you know 200,000 times out of 200,000 it should have been a goal and Anika Kasikas dives the wrong way he anticipates what Robin's going to do which is right foot bent to the keeper's left and instead Robin I, I'm sure thinking I know what Anika's going to do puts it to the keeper's right and Casillas leaves out a leg which we often see in penalties now but he leaves out a leg and it's the the big toe of the upper boot which must be his right foot the, it's the toe it doesn't even hit the face of the, the, the and it goes wide and Robin sinks to his knees and I've never seen I saw in your earlier edition of Jonathan Wilson talking about the best by a distance, without competition, that's the best save I've ever seen. It's another spiritual moment where you just go like, yeah, this is why I do this. This is why you run around countries carrying camera gear. This is why you, you're at four o'clock in the morning in some mad airport where the cops want to examine your stuff and the players are waiting and you're sweating and you're like seven, eight weeks away from you. This, this is it. And at the end of the game, I liked Ike and we got on well. At the end of the game, I got an interview with him one-on-one -on -one and, and I just went, Ike, you and Arjun Robin, what was that moment like? And he just stopped and he went, big brown eyes and he, it was eternal. I thought, that'll do me. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so it has proven. Um, I, I think, obviously, the context always matters with this stuff too. So to win the World Cup with the save, it's like, you know, it's it's this the striker gets the opportunity to do it, but he he got it that time. Um, nice of Karim Benzema to know that we were doing this today to score last night to be relevant in the news today. But Benzema's form over the last year, in particular, has been sensational. So to bring us right up to date in twenty twenty one, this is the game against PSG. Yeah, no, I uh, I would have said it would be this year. I would have sorry twenty two. Yeah. yeah, 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 because. Look, there, there's a special place in my affection for Karim Benzema because uh, I couldn't say that about everything he's done in his life outside football. But ever since I've seen him, which the first time I watched him was when Lyon came to the Camp Nou against Barcelona. They got, they got hiding and he was very, very young. But it was very clear that this was somebody who uh, wasn't just an ordinary nine, that he could drift wide, that he was intelligent, that his use of space was good. And you thought, well, let's see how this guy develops. That's all I thought on the night. Interesting, nice to watch. At Real Madrid, he's been battered about. There was times when Mourinho didn't believe in him, where he had to go and batter down Mourinho's door to have an argument with them. As much as it's retrospectively recognised, nobody really thought of Karim Benzema as great because of the work he did for Cristiano Ronaldo. But he was. And then when Ronaldo left, he just went, brilliant, superb. Centre stage. Here we go. And scored and scored and scored and scored and led. And in in this season, I, I, I said I'm in Helsinki and therefore I've had access over the two days to, <clears throat> to lots of players who played in that Champions League winning side last season. And they've consistently said despite what they did against Atleti in Lisbon, you know, winning an extra time after a, a final second equaliser, despite the the, you know, the quality of the Bale goal against Liverpool, despite winning three in a row, a, a large chunk of Madrid's side have said that was the most emotional um, win last season because of the nature of the mad late goals against City, against Chelsea, you know, the final against a, a tough Liverpool side. But every one of them has said the turning point was Paris Saint-Germain. They played like stinking drains in Paris. They should have been beaten 
Courtois was heroic. They come to the Bernabeu, and for a big chunk of time, not only does Mbappe score, but he looks like he can score three. And it looks like they're out. And, and the reason I put this in is that when Colm was talking to me about this, and you mentioned it in the intro about like moments to take you out of yourself, again, I've never in a football stadium like done this, where, you know, I, I can't believe it. When you look at the short space of time that three goals that Benzema scores um, take place in, it's a blitzkrieg. And this one that I picked, the, the, the moment, the performance, it's a hat trick, they go through. They all, all the Madrid players said that's the turning point where, you know, the, the Chelsea, Man City, and Liverpool performance has come from. Not just that they got through, but they were like, yeah, we can do anything. It's like they, they scored to go two, um, two nil up, and, and and that could see them through. And and Rodrigo comes on, he he, he wins the ball from Paris Saint Germain's um, kickoff, and, and I think it was Idrissa Gay. I, I I might be wrong. He gets hustled, and they break. And the ball goes down the other end, and it's Vinicius Benzema. And Benzema scores. It's about, I'd say, 110 seconds from his second goal. And the Bernabeu is is just a phenomenal. I can't even describe what it's like because you're there, and they're a little bit arrogant because of everything they've done. They think they're going to go through all the time, and sometimes it's not like a library. But they're sitting there going, right, do something miraculous, not entertain us. We're waiting for the miracle. And this night, the miracle came from a context of rubbish in Paris, pretty outplayed for 55 minutes in their own patch. I don't think the crowd believed. And then Benzema was bang, bang, bang. The hat-trick goal. It was just... And I, I literally, before I started working again, I was like, I don't believe what I've seen. And that fits into... It might not seem to an audience outside Spain like a transcendental match or moment, but it's in this because it fits what... Colm said to me about just that moment where you're like, yeah, this this is what it's all about. And I'm just, you're transformed into a spectator, not a fan of either of the sides, but you're just there going all hail football. Yeah, Graham, I had very high expectations about this slot and you've managed to smash those. Thank you very much. That was brilliant. Lads. It was so unexpected. You had to be there. Covering Celtic at that time was a brilliant thing. The atmosphere at Parkhead was always great. You had to be there. Nobody ever talks about this game. Nobody saw it. Uh, you had to be there. Turns out covering football for uh, 40 years leads you to see some amazing things. Yeah, and covering one of the greatest football teams of all time and one of the other greatest football teams of all time also leads to some uh, sensational things as well. So yeah, That was class. Right, we're back uh, at Vicker Street in association with Cadbury FC. A massive roadshow coming your way on the 17th of August. Michael Owen, Ian Wright, Emma Byrne and Karen Carney will be our guests. Some great stories, obviously, as we uh, look forward to the rest of the season. It's a celebration of women's football. It's also going to be a celebration of Ian Wright's career and what he thinks of this Arsenal team. Pretty exciting at the moment. I would say so, and I would. Are you say bringing your Arsenal jersey to get signed? Uh, I haven't got an updated one recently. Well, you don't need you need a vintage Ian Wright jersey. I do. I don't have a vintage either. Oh right. Yeah. Need to right. source it. Actually, sorry, I ordered one off uh, a certain website like last year, and it just never came. Ah, oh, right. Well, you got to get onto them and tell them it's urgent. You yeah. need it for next Wednesday night. Tickets are available otbsports.com forward slash events. And a reminder that the proceeds are going towards supporting Irish women's grassroots football. T's and C's apply. We'll see you on the night now. At day 46, John Duggan, good morning to you. Jaron Owen, how are you doing? What is going on? 
Lots going on, lads. Uh, St. Pat's obviously involved in Europe tonight in the Conference League at Tallis Stadium, 7.45 start against CSK. Sofia, 1-0 up from the first leg. Basel or Bronbu awaiting the winners in the playoff for the Conference League. Can Pats get through? Let's hope they can. Sligo playing for pride against Viking of Norway. 7 o'clock start of the showgrounds, 5-1 down after the first leg in Norway. We had Real Madrid winning last night, the UEFA Super Cup, 2-0 against Eintracht Frankfurt, Chidoz Egbane on the mark for a Rotherham against Port Vale in the EFL Cup. Um, the golf beginning in Memphis this evening with uh, Rory McIlroy, Shane Lowry, Seamus Power all in the field for the FedEx uh, St. Jude Invitational at TPC Southwind. If you want to have a look at my selections, they're on otbsports.com for virtual insanity. Uh, we also have two county Antrim courses splitting hosting duties for the ISPS Handel World Invitational. So this is a tri-sanctioned event from the LPGA Tour, the Ladies European Tour and the DP World Tour. Two separate men's and women's tournaments with Yona Maguire and uh, Stephanie Meadow involved in the women's side. They're playing two different courses, Maz Reen Golf Club and Galgorm Castle for the first two days and then Galgorm Castle for the closing two rounds. So Ashley O'Reilly's interview with uh, Leona is on our social channel as well, worth a look. Niall Horan's involved in this. Yeah, uh, he's obviously been busking yeah. on Grafton Street and hanging out in the pubs of Mullingar. I suspect he's going to be at the golf this week. This is oh yeah, he's been, in the last years he's been heavily involved in an agency, hasn't he, about promoting women's golf and that kind of thing. So um, I'd expect he'll be definitely there. Um, we've got nine separate European championships across all these sports in Munich a little mini Olympics over the next while starting today athletics rowing cycling canoe sprint gymnastics table tennis triathlon sport climbing and beach volleyball so all eight Irish rowing crews are involved in qualifying today Paula Donovan and Fintan McCarthy the Olympic champions in the qualifiers for the lightweight double skulls sad news as well about Peter Byrne Um, anybody who's old enough to remember Peter Byrne is a brilliant sports writer Irish Times soccer correspondent athletics boxing as well six World Cups eight Olympic Games may he rest in peace passed away Jack Charlton's official uh, biographer anybody who might remember uh, Jack Charlton's World Cup diary which was uh, penned by Peter so sad news as well coming out yesterday alright Christoph John anything else going on uh, not really um, it's, it's funny you're talking about Arsenal there um, I don't know why I did this to myself but sometimes I just like put on a sports documentary I watched 89 which is all about Michael Thomas and the game at Anfield it's very good very good uh, Like, and Owen hadn't seen it so it'd be a labour of love now for Owen to watch But uh, and where is it available It's um, I got it on Sky Store right um, like everybody's interviewed the, the whole lot of them Ian Reich um quite emotional speaking about David Rocastle and David O'Leary's interviewed and uh, interesting that David O'Leary won the league last that night as a sweeper didn't know he played in that game uh, when uh, Arsenal went to Anfield and won the league title against Liverpool with effectively the last kick of the season with Michael Thomas scoring the goal there's just an interesting anecdote in it I don't know if I'm giving too much of a spoiler away here but um you know, they got George Graham came in in 86 and they got the four across the back, didn't he? He signed uh, Dixon, Winterburn, Bold, and, and Tony Adams was already at Arsenal. But there was one moment where Lee Dixon, before North London Derby, you know, saw the lads looking at him in the uh, dressing room and uh, he's going, well, why are you looking at me? Is there something wrong? And eventually he was pinned up against the wall by his own teammates and says, this is the North London Derby, make sure you play well today. <laughs> So it's quite a fascin- fascinating anecdote from Lee Dixon uh, just about the... Tough uh, love. Uh, the, yeah, uh, yeah. A rule by fear. Yeah, the intensity of it. Things of, have changed a bit. They have changed. And, um, but it was, it was one of the interesting things. But yeah, it was very well told. 89. I love all these... Like, I've watched a lot of these kind of sports documentaries about English football. It was one about Howard Kendall as well and Everton in the 80s. And uh, 
Maradona obviously you can't get enough of them can't get enough of them One last thing which we, we didn't talk about there was a thing in, in the papers yesterday about the Spurs signings I didn't realise they're all big men Yeah, they've, they've yeah. Had, like, I don't know if it's a policy or if it's been accidental that everybody signed has been over six foot uh, they're going to be a team of giants Well it's funny because they think Kulosevsky he thinks himself could be a number 10 but even when you see Haaland's movement the other day you can't think well Haaland's frame is that going to deliver the movement and the pace that, that he delivered and uh, what Conte wants is aggression he wants Spurs to be nasty uh, as much as he can be in, in professional football and that's where I think where Spurs have been lacking um, there's actually an article I have yet to read it uh, in, about Paratici today in the uh, I think it's in the Telegraph so I'm looking forward to reading that when I get out of the studio here about look there's been a, a complete overhaul in Tottenham's recruitment in that um one of their guys uh, left, the, the main recruitment guy left, and Fabio Paratici came in. Uh, they worked together with uh, Conte back at Juventus, and actually they're telling uh, Daniel Levy what the story is, which is usually the other way around, isn't it? Um, if you believe what you, you see in the Amazon documentaries and all that kind of thing. Yeah, and, and look, uh, the Paratici thing, obviously, after the, after the fact and everything's going well now, he's credited with turning Harry Kane around by making the point that if Man City really wanted you here, Harry, they would just spend 120 million not the 80 million they don't actually want you that's embarrassing now at the time they had a manager who shouldn't have been in the role because he wasn't good enough for it so I'm not sure if that's all a little bit retrospective we knew what we were doing because you know they didn't have Antonio Conte as the manager they they had oh. the opportunity to have Conte yeah they did and they, they turned and it down yeah, and yeah. they got lucky yeah they got, they got lucky that they realised the error of their ways and for once Joe Lewis and Daniel Levy decided to spend the money 150 million now maybe they weren't able to when the stadium was being uh, reconstructed maybe but, maybe it's a fair but, point but, but now now it's so like we're going to Chelsea it's funny my, my nephew was saying look can you get me a ticket for the away end like where, where am I going to be able to get the tickets um, well, but, you put it out there you manifest it me um, a bit like Rovers in their flight uh, uh, but because uh, he thinks they're going to beat Chelsea, this is a really interesting game. Uh, like, Ch- like Chelsea, like Bailey. I was reading about Bailey. Like, is, is like heavily involved in these transfers, and it's quite amazing, really. Like Tuchel and Bailey just seem to be just re- like splashing the cash, like a Bamiyang, Bamiyang back to Chelsea. Imagine him scoring at home. Bamiyang uh, and Fafana uh, still to come. Imagine a Bamiyang scoring uh, at Arsenal this season, and uh, and De Jong like, running to Mikel Arteta, and That'd De Jong, be amazing. De Jong scoring at Old Trafford and uh, running to you know I don't know. Oh yeah. It's all to come. Yeah, John, good our stuff. lads. OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. More from John Duggan on Saturday afternoon on Off the Ball on News Talk from 1 o'clock. Uh, I'm delighted to say we're joined in the line by Kira McGean, fresh from her Commonwealth Games silver medal in Birmingham and a season's best. Kira, good morning to you. How are you feeling? Good morning. I'm, I'm good. Good. Waking and up for my morning run. So uh, thanks for having me on. What is the story in the aftermath of something like that where there's a medal ceremony and a podium? How how different an experience is that? And what's that actually like to live through? Um, do you know what? It's it's those little moments in athletics that, uh, that are the little golden chunks because uh, I had a lovely message from Lizzie Lee after. Um, I get on really well with Lizzie and anybody who knows athletics is a good cork marathoner. So um she uh she was like enjoy yourself and I was like I should had said I know that it's not been the smooth smoothest journey and I was like oh sure look you know yourself um the good times are good and the bad times are bad but they make the good times all the sweeter so yeah getting to do a victory lap and looking up trying to find my parents and my aunt and my boyfriend in the crowd um those are the little special moments um I actually had to take my mummy's trainers because they told me I was going straight to the to the medal ceremony and I kind of was like are you not letting me get my kit out of the mixed zone um, so my, my poor mum was walking about in her socks for, <laughs> for a good chunk of the time um, but yeah it's it's something special getting to, to stand on the podium is always 
always absolutely fantastic and it's what I what I do athletics for so yeah on cloud nine <laughs> and how long does that last how long does the the afterglow of that last and do you carry it now for the rest of the season in some ways um yeah like it's it's something that I'm kind of coming to terms with and trying to trying to certainly appreciate those little moments more I feel like in my junior career it was yep that's brilliant park it and on to the next one and um, there is still that type of mentality with European championships coming up next week there's not much celebrating that can be done so um I got to see my family and give them some hugs and then it was back to the village and get some food and try to sleep that night and I found it very hard to sleep that night probably a combination of um the excitement of it all but also the caffeine that I'd had in my body and all the all the sugary drinks that you tend to take in the build-up and the re- and the recovery after um but it's certainly been lovely coming back to Manchester and sharing the medal with my teammates here um and seeing all the messages from home I've been blown away with the support um I think Port of Ferries uh, very excited my parents we're going down the street to get a newspaper and we're coming up bars later because they were stopped by everybody at home. So, you know, it's those little things that make me smile, realising that, that that victory for me, which is obviously fantastic in my athletic career, it also means so much to everybody back home and to all my teammates here. So, yeah, I'd say I'll, I'll still I'll still bask in the afterglow of it, but um, in many senses, it's back to business. So I straight back into training to get ready for the European Championships and hopefully at the end of the season I'll be able to take a wee moment to to enjoy this full season um, I've still got plenty left to do so I'm trying to enjoy it but not too much Well a- apart from the kind of emotional level of the enjoyment and obviously that's all totally deserved and earned is, is there do you think a performance benefit from a success like this, a confidence that helps you to actually just be a better runner and to run faster. In it, it kind of it doesn't make any sense because, like, physically, you're not any better today than you were the day before. But actually, having come through, is there is there something intangible that makes you now better when you're next competing? Um, I certainly think so. And even even physically, whenever you're going through the rounds, like usually in a training week, you wouldn't have hard session and quite so close to a previous hard session so to go from heats to final and with just a day in between and um, there always is a training effect physiologically on the body so my body will take another little step forward like many athletes um train them race themselves fit it's kind of like a, a phrase that we could use that people sharpen up and get fitter throughout the season and um, in many senses your aerobic fitness isn't really improving but you know that race sharpness and that astuteness is certainly getting honed in and and I feel like that's certainly going to be a benefit for me from the Commonwealth Games because having not been an overly fast race by any stretch of the imagination I feel quite unfortunate to, to personally feel that like I'm in really good shape and I feel like I, I could run a PB right now um, all of the 1500 metres that I've, I find myself in over this summer haven't been as fast as I would like them to be uh, championships aren't usually but the two diamond leagues I was in weren't fast diamond leagues which was disappointing for me um, but I definitely feel that tactic wise I've really honed in that um, kind of eye and really feeling confident out on the track and that'll certainly stand to me going into European champs What's the Commonwealth Games like as an occasion when you compare it to some of the, the, the European events, the World Championships that you've been involved in? 
Yeah, Commonwealth is um, is another unique event in the same sense as Olympics because it's a multi-sport event. So it's always great fun to be there with an entire team. Um, it has the village aspect that uh, normal kind of world champs or European champs doesn't have um, simply because it's their own sport. So it's solely athletics at Europeans and worlds, but um, Commonwealth Games and Olympic Games, you have a whole village. Um, so you're kind of there with the entire team. So the entirety of FM team and I were there in the village be it a broken up village because um, my understanding was that it wasn't finished in time so we were all in different kind of little campuses but um, but that's that's a really fun aspect so you're in the village with all the different countries and all the different sports you get to meet people who you don't usually meet throughout the, the usual racing calendar which is always really fun and you kind of get back chatting to some folks that you maybe haven't seen for four years because they work in the Commonwealth Games um, committee as opposed to your own your own governing body um, so that's that's great fun and I think like that kind of atmosphere really captures um, everybody's sport and ambition and, and the joy of all of that. So, yeah, Commonwealth Games is another little unique situation and um, you're around people that you aren't usually around to in the sense that athletics um, team NI is made up of athletes, obviously, who run for, for Ireland and athletes who run for Great Britain. Um, so that's another little unique thing. Like I get to meet Northern Irish athletes who I don't see very, very much and some people who I've never really met before. And... Um, and then we're part of our national squad in, athletic, in um, the Commonwealth Games NI team. So, yeah, that's always good fun. I think it's great. It brings everybody together. And personally, being from Northern Ireland, I think it really it really shows the best that Northern Irish has and how progressive the country is. Um, and I think hopefully we're a sign of where, where the country's going to go. That's interesting because, you know, there's... Um it, uh, we, uh, anytime we talk about Northern Ireland, Ireland, the UK, there's a complication there that we're we're all uh, terribly aware of all the time. But it's interesting to hear that you can actually see that uh, it's possible that everybody can run together, swim together, cycle together, sometimes fight in the ring, and uh, and it's all fine. And it's actually not just fine; it's good. Yeah, I think um, obviously people tiptoe around um, the topic around Northern Ireland and, and I feel like people don't really know how to discuss it. And, and I tend to try to stay pretty apolitical whenever it comes to my athletic career. I'm here to compete in sport. Um, but I think many aspects of our lives are, are showing how progressive Northern Ireland is, um, the young people coming up and what we want Northern Ireland to be. And I feel that whenever we come together as a team, really epitomise the, the best of what Northern Ireland is. Um, the messages that I'm getting from the whole of Northern Ireland, people who feel they're Irish, people who feel they're British, it doesn't matter. We come together as a team. And, you know, I think sport is a fantastic and a great equaliser in that sense, too. Um, people put their differences to the side to cheer each other on. Um, and it's certainly something that I love to see. And, you know, all of our um, all of your differences do get set to the side and you're excited for somebody going out there and performing at the highest level. And hopefully that can continue into the future. And I think it's it's a good thing that we come together as Irish and British athletes um, with a common goal. And, and it's lovely to see. And in the aftermath, did you get to see many of, of your teammates or because you were straight back and trying to get some sleep, was there not much hanging out with them? Um, yeah, I didn't. Well, 
with with um, COVID restrictions still kind of being in place, many of the athletes had left the village soon after their competitions. Um, so I didn't get to see quite as many of the other sports. A lot of the other the other guys who I would know from being on the Irish Olympic team um, from other sports like uh, Daniel Hill, for example, who's absolutely mad crack, one of the swimmers. Um, I was looking forward to catching up with some of them, but they had already left the village. I managed to bump into Reese. Um, twice as he was on his way to the food hall but he also headed back home to, to Northern Ireland pretty soon after um, so it's it's the type of thing that you're like oh yeah it would be nice to catch up with him um, but thankfully there was another few of the athletes still knocking about um, the Flanagan twins were there so I, I spent a good bit of time with them enjoy their company so having a good chat with them and obviously getting to celebrate with Kate because she was still about was fantastic to to have two female medalists on the track for athletics and I was absolutely brilliant so Getting to share that with her was was something special, and I feel like I'm kind of like a matriarch in the in the athletics career, uh, team now. I'm the old one, and um, so to see the younger athletes come through and really excel to run PBs, seasons bests, and get the best themselves out of, out at the championship was was brilliant. So yeah, I'm hoping that we get a little bit more of a celebration later in the season. It's clearly something that you really enjoy the interactions with the non-runners. Like I presume it's just good crack, but is there like a other element to it as well? Like do you get nuggets off other high-performance athletes in terms of stuff that they use to to, to approach their specific sport with? Definitely, yeah. It's I think it's fantastic to have a chat and kind of see how they cope and how they traverse the the kind of um, challenges that elite sport throw up to you. Um, as well with the Commonwealth Games, we also have like a mix of um, para and and um, athletes on the team as well as the athletes that I would usually be competing with um, at say Europeans, Olympics. Because uh, in, the, in the Olympic village, we don't get to actually meet the other para athletes. Um, and I personally, like I, I get on really well with Ellen Keane, as you guys would know. Um, and it's great because like we all share the same similar path. I always find it really fun getting to meet all the other athletes. Um, I was sharing with Eve at the at the games as well. She was in the same same kind of little room as me and getting to chat to her about even just her plans and ambitions in life and where she's going next. I think we do learn a lot and that's you know, we're all on the same path and we're doing something very similar. So getting to share and maybe for me to share some of my experience. Um some of the girls unfortunately came away from the games with um a bit of an injury or they kind of came in carrying something and were maybe disappointed. And for me to get to share with them, like I had a similar experience at the Olympic Games last year and and them to see me a year following um taking home a medal, you know, it gives them kind of the hope that okay, this injury isn't isn't going to end me completely I can build back up and still have a fantastic season next year and and sport is all about the ups and the downs that's unfortunately the fact of the matter and so getting to share my own experiences with them as well as learning from them yeah I think that's that's key and as well as as that all the support staff that we have around us too because you know they've been to more games than than I will ever be probably that you know they've been there for for much longer than I will and have been so um learning from their experience too and just kind of getting the getting an eye and knowledge of how our sports are run is also something that I find really interesting. You mentioned last year's Olympics there and I know you kind of kept it private until afterwards that, that you were carrying an injury going into those games. Did you know beforehand, before these Commonwealth Games, that this was going to be good, that it was going to be a success because sometimes they say it's all done in the preparation and you kind of know before you get out there that, that it's going to be a success. So has this summer basically been, has it all gone to plan? Has your training gone effectively? And, and did you kind of know it was going to be uh, one that would involve a medal? 
Yeah, like I suppose I was unlucky with the Olympic Games tearing my calf the week ahead of the Games in my very last training session. Um, but coming into into this summer and coming into the Commonwealth Games, I did know that I was in good shape. Uh, thankfully, our sport is very easy in the sense that, you know, those outcome measures that you look at, high training's going, specific sessions that may be key markers are obviously very easy to compare to previous years. And, and I was hitting training sessions as well, if not better than previous years. Um, I felt in good shape. I had come out with two fantastic 800 meter races where I ran 159 in both. Um, so that's just a real nice indicator of where the performance is at. Um, and it's also, I take huge, huge kind of confidence from my coach in that feedback. So Helen had been giving me feedback saying, you know, some of the, sometimes she was like, I've never seen an athlete train like that. And that's something that's really special to come from an athlete who I looked up to. Um, anybody who doesn't know that Helen Clitheroe was, um, was a fantastic British athlete, an English athlete. She competed at many Commonwealth Games and I actually competed against her at my first Commonwealth Games. So she's somebody that I've often, I've always looked up to in my athletic career. She had a very long career as well. Um, but now to hear her saying like, I, I've never done a session like that. I'm like, okay, this has given me a lot of confidence too. So I did come in knowing that I was in good shape and I came in with the ambition of of being up there on the podium and, and actually knowing that I had the capability of being there, which comes with its own pressure. But it's nice to come in, say, a Games, knowing that you're in shape and that you're you're ready, as opposed to, yeah, the Olympic Games where I came in knowing that I had torn my calf the week before. You tow the line and it's very hard to to know that, you know, this performance isn't going to be what I've prepared all year for and it's heartbreaking, but I'll give everything on the track on that day um, for me to know that I've everything that I've put in is actually going to come out on the track that day and that I'll hopefully get the just rewards it's it's something special because quite often the stars don't align like that Well I really hope that the, the rest of the season goes exactly the same for you Kira, because you totally deserve it after everything you've been through congratulations again and thanks a million for joining us always great to talk to you Thanks so much lads have a good day It's Kira McGean um, at shining star on the track for us in Ireland at the moment OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day here's what's on OTB Sports Radio for you today Declan Murphy's story uh, of his book Centaur at 1 o'clock Leaders Questions with Stuart Lancaster at 3 our retro panel is about losing the dressing room at 4 OTB Gold is Jerry Eisenberg talking about Muhammad Ali and OTB is live with Nathan Murphy from 7 tonight uh, download the OTB Sports app for the fastest access to all of our podcasts across the podcast network. After the break, we're live in studio with Shelburne's new superstar, Heather O'Reilly. First, on last night's show, Joe, Mick, Arthur and Ronan talked about how journalists have evolved in the way they cover sport. Take a look. What about, so, what about when you see like so-called like correspondents of clubs like, uh, you know, tweeting in ca- all caps when they score a goal and yeah, all that yeah. kind of... That, that, I don't, doesn't sit well with me I don't either. know what to think about that. No, anymore. it doesn't sit well with me either. I'm not saying it does. I'm just, I, I don't think this is a new phenomenon. I think people have always liked to be told that the thing they like is good. But that and dismissive tagline of fans with typewriters, nobody's been naive to the notion that the reason people get involved in football journalism is because there's the, the kernel of that implied support, which they would have grown up with. And it's hard to detach yourself from that. There was a sense, possibly in years gone by, where people would overcompensate to the nth degree almost yeah. to yeah. hide their uh, their passions in that regard but yeah the goal thing I think is a perfect synopsis of something that really gets my wake a little bit like. but it's the, it's the inverse as you said you'd, you'd support a team you'd become a correspondent and you'd hide who you supported mm. whereas now you kind of laud the fact that I'm covering the team I'm cheering the team on Yeah, we've scored here's our boss 
and it's like oh, here's what he had to say that kind of stuff it's excuse making when the result doesn't go your way and like having to go with the referee it's like this is not a journalism ethics as far as I can tell do you think it's down to internet and twitter yeah I think you've all raised very good points there and the internet as with every strand of life at the moment centralises these matters but um, as much as keeping fans on side it's also about keeping the club on side which is something you mentioned because equally employers don't want to be looking at their correspondent and thinking the fans don't like you but equally yeah. they don't want every other correspondent from all the other outlets breaking a story getting the briefing and you didn't because you had to go at the club last week like it would be interesting to see um, 15 years ago or whatever how the laser takeover was handled by correspondents at the time versus how the, the next takeover of Manchester United which is seemingly coming down the tracks how that will be covered I'd say it'll be markedly different OTB AM Right, 11 minutes past 9 this Thursday morning I'm delighted to say Heather O'Reilly Shelburne's latest recruit is with us in studio Heather, how are you? I'm doing really well Thanks for having me So, uh, nice of you to bring the Charlotte, North North Carolina weather to Ireland so that we could all (laughs) bask in a bit of sunshine Yeah, I know Everybody's talking about rainy Ireland and I get here and it's Bright and beautiful, so I'm happy to do that if I uh, had anything to do with it. How is your acclimatization going? What, what's that like? It's good. I mean, um, I came over here with, I have two little kids. Uh, one's two years old and one's eight months old. So uh, you can imagine for the first week there was some time adjustment problems. It was like a symphony of cries in the middle of the night with uh, with jet lag and things like that. But once we all sorted that out, it's all good. And, uh, you know, driving's a little bit of a challenge for me right now because I'm used to the other side of the road. So uh, I haven't I haven't been behind the wheel too much, which is probably a good thing for for the the sake of the country of Ireland, um, yeah, but it, but it's good. The the squad has been really kind and welcoming, and um, for them, I think obviously you know they are in the middle of the season, so to have any sort of addition um, will take you know a number of games to kind of get reacclimated and and to meet each other. And um, listen, I th- I don't think it's a secret. Like I have been out of the game for two and a half years well, now. Ask, yeah, so so yeah. I mean, part of it for me is is getting up to speed and um, getting my fitness back. I mean, certainly I've been playing playing five aside and things like that and charity matches and it's not like I'm I actually ran the Boston Marathon a couple of months ago so I've been staying fit but obviously it's quite a bit different than like having competitive matches on the weekend. So Sorry, I was just going to say, like you said, you've mentioned that it's the the opportunity to play in the Champions League is is a big factor in your decision to return, but it must also just be the competitive factor. Like you mentioned, playing five aside, you're playing soccer aid. You've, I suppose there's a competitive aspect to running a marathon, to say the, the least. But is there just was there just something missing on a competitive level when it comes to the, the football you were playing? Well, I think so. I think any um, or most competitive athletes will tell you, like when you hang up your boots, like not much compares, right? I mean, you try to find you know those things that kind of get those endorphins pumping the same way that like competitive sport does and I do some TV work I do some coaching of course I play uh you know, in small games and things like that. But uh, I love football. I just love playing. So, um, but the Champions League aspect, like you mentioned, was a huge um, 
determinant of me coming out. I think I, you know, I've won World Cups, I've won Olympics, um, I, I've won a lot of trophies in in the U.S. I came over to Arsenal, played for a year and a half, um, won there as well. So I've done a lot of wonderful things, but I never played Champions League, and it always kind of bummed me out that I never did. When I was at Arsenal, we got third the year before, and at that point, only two teams qualified, so I sort of missed out. So it's always just kind of been like this burning thing that I've wanted to to do. And uh, I thought when I, you know, hung up the boots and had had a family that that was probably it for me. But here we are. I felt pretty good and I wanted to put them back on and and give this a go. So who made contact with who? How did that happen? (laughs) Uh, I put myself out there and I wrote uh, a few emails, reached out to Shelbourne and, and just said like, Hi, I'm Heather, and I've, here's my CV. And they're like, we know who you are. Like, actually, Noel King was the the coach of the national team for for many years. So we've faced up against each other through the years. And with a name like O'Reilly, I think back in the day, he had done a little bit of research and just reached out to me to see if. I wanted to play for Ireland. Actually, my great great grandparents came over in like the early 1900s. So too late. I didn't yeah. too late. I didn't actually. I couldn't play for the Irish national team if I wanted to. But anyway, so Noel and I, uh, yeah, we we actually have a long history of knowing of each other. Actually, and one of my earliest memories is not a great memory of playing Ireland because Emma Byrne, the goalkeeper that played for a long time. Uh, she actually broke my leg in 2003. Nice. I was like on the cusp of making the World Cup team as a teenager and working towards this dream. And then ball comes in. I head it past Emma Byrne. It actually, I see it trickling over the goal line into the net, but she came out, cracked my fibula, kept me out of the World Cup. So I had like just, just like lukewarm feelings of the Irish team okay. there for a while. <laughs> but anyways, much. we've we've rebounded, we've come back. Did you make peace with Emma at any point? You know, we, we did. We're part of, um, actually, it's funny because Emma and I are part of this group. FIFA is, um, you know, they're trying to do some positive things, FIFA is, and they're not all bad people, right? And so they've done this pilot program called the the Next 90 of Former Players. I, I go like this because, you know, I'm not no longer former player. Yeah. I'm back in it. Um, but uh, so Emma and I are part of this group of like 50 or so former players that um, are part of a, it, it's essentially a year long furthering your education, uh, you know, business skills. And if you want to become a director of a academy and things like that. So they sort of equip you with sort of, um, you know, ways to essentially transition to your next steps of your career. So we're Within part of football. this group together. Right. Yeah. In football or even if you want to do something outside football. Um, and so Emma and I have, of course, re- reunited and we've bantered a little bit about when she when she crippled me there. <laughs> but uh, and that was kind of one of the the catalysts. So I played in soccer and I was inspired by Arsene Wenger, who is my manager in the in that fundraiser. He said, Heather, you're still very good. You should play football still. And I said, OK. Well, maybe I'll think about it. And then I, with Emma Byrne, I was part of this group called the Next 90. So we were together in Zurich, where the headquarters of FIFA are. And of course, we were doing mostly like classroom sessions and boring stuff. But of course, we wanted to get out in the pitch and, and play like just a fun match. So I played and, and, and again, that gets like the, the juices flowing and the thoughts flying that like maybe I do want to you know, give this a go again. And so Emma was there when we were like, I literally pulled up the UEFA website and said like, okay, what teams are in the UEFA Champions League? Where would be cool projects? What would be like a fulfilling thing for me to do? Um, And I remember being like, who's 
S H E L because you know usually it's like Roma or like Juve, and they're like that's Shelburne from Dublin. I said, huh, that could be kind of cool. Um, you know, obviously I have some some Irish blood in me, and um, and I know a lot of the Irish players. I'm looking right here at a at a picture of Denise O'Sullivan. I played with Katie McCabe at Arsenal and Louise Quinn at Arsenal as well. So. You know, similar to what England is doing right now in women's football, like you know, the potential is uh, is there for Irish national football to 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 be a contender, and I hope that they um, have continued success. They're playing Finland, uh, I think, next month to try to have a successful qualifying run for the World Cup. So it was sort of like a project that I was like, listen, this is. Uh, yeah, I knew that it was sort of not a professional league yet. Um, hopefully coming over here will bring some attention to the league and what the women have done at Shelburne FC has been spectacular winning the league last year and they work in the shadows a lot I mean literally like they work and then they play in the evenings and you know we're getting to the point now where um, yeah women's football is professionalizing and um and and yeah, I think that they they deserve to be to be seen and appreciated for the athletes that they are. How has the reality of playing for Shelburne differed from the expectation? Hmm. Good question. I think. Um, well, I th- I think like, whenever I come over to Europe, I realize that like everybody knows the game, right? Like as in these women have been watching the game ingrained in the sport, uh, whether it's watching Premier League. Or, or or whatever it is supporting your local team and and for me that's different and in America like there's a lot of girls that play sports and and you have a lot of good little athletes but they don't like love the game they don't like talk about like oh did you see Liverpool like leads over the weekend like and these women are so they have like a deep appreciation for the game so I would say like when I'm on the pitch with the women there is um, you can tell that there are behind the curve in certain ways but ahead of it in in others like sometimes like we even went up to Sligo on uh, last weekend and um, some of the finishes and the the technique and the understanding of the game is quite good so I think that that has exceeded my expectations Um, and then in terms of um, differing I think that like I have been privileged to um, have like a long professional career in the US where I've been paid to be a professional athlete for like 15 years um, and just you know there has been I think little steps along the way of, of what does professionalism mean it, it's not only you know money you know a, a check uh, uh, twice a month it's recovery time yeah, it's recovery it's diet yeah. it's um a lot of things that sort of go into it so um that is a little bit different to me and and still has a little ways to go but um the potential is there so uh yeah it, I, and I would also say that people are more enthused about me being here i think that i thought um I think at the end of the day, like, I have been retired for two and a half years. I'm an older player. Um, so, like, I didn't really know how that would be received. We, we but say experienced. Yeah, exactly. Vintage, vintage. Better with uh, with age, like fine wine. So, uh, no, I think that, like, the reception has been great. I mean, obviously, for me to be here with you guys has been uh, super fun. In your head, how long a project is this for you? Is it strictly this one short season, or are you thinking this might be a year, this could extend? What, what, what do yeah, you- well, the Women's League, uh, you know, it just goes until November 
six is the cup final, right? So that is um, sort of a date that I'm kind of keeping in mind. Obviously, we'll see how this Champions League run goes. I mean, I'm a competitor, right? And like, I'm a winner. I like to say, like, I've, I've won a lot of things in my career. So I'm going over to Slovenia next week and with the expectation of winning two games. Like, that's just how I'm, how I'm built. And then after that, we'll, we'll be faced up with some other Champions League opponents and we'll just kind of like see where this goes. So I think, um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a, a short project for me. Like, um, but I'm also learning a lot about Irish sport, and um, our chairman is this guy named Andrew Doyle, who's um, who's a really exciting guy, and he is doing some great things at Shelbourne FC, and has a lot of um, ideas for the future that I think would be interesting to hear more about, and seeing if I want to get involved in okay. in right. in that aspect. So I, I'm up for it, certainly. Um, it's Do a little you, early on to to say that right now, though. I've sure. only been here for like two no, weeks. totally. But it's just interesting to see what like what what the range of potential outcomes are. Do you want to be a manager at some point? Is that your long term yeah. goal? Yeah. So I think I'm at the point of my career where I'm kind of testing the water in different ways. I have uh, I've been kind of on my pathway of getting my badges, my coaching badges. Like, I have my UEFA B badge. I was hoping to maybe look into getting my UEFA A badge when I'm here, and that just sort of opens some some doors. Um, I do some TV and punditry work as well. Um, but I, I do think that I want to be a manager. Um, I just love this game a lot, so I obviously can't play forever. And so, uh, yeah, leading people and, and working with uh, – Working with teams is is a lot of fun, and and I don't necessarily just think on the women's side. Like I think, so actually, right now I'm I'm teed up to be coaching an under fifteen boys team in the U.S. In, starting in like late November when I get back, and I think that that's interesting because I think that you know everybody looks at women's players assuming that they'll coach women, and like it doesn't really have to be like that. So I'm looking forward to. Getting these boys, uh, yeah, on the line and getting them uh, appreciating a female a female manager and seeing if I appreciate that. Well, listen, Heather, we wish you the very best of luck with it. It's a, it's a sensational story that Shelburne have been able to get somebody who has uh, three Olympic gold medals and a World Cup. And uh, it's great that you're so interested in the league to, to bring that to bear. And I'm very interested to see what might come of um, those conversations with the Shelburne chairman in the long term. Yeah, I, I am as well. And uh, yeah, looking forward to this weekend. We play Treaty United on Saturday at Tuckle Park, and it's sort of a send-off to the Champions League. Um, so hopefully as many people can come out as possible to see us off. And um, yeah, and, and join in this exciting movement right now. Well, uh, best of luck. Thanks a million for joining us. And I think there's going to be a huge crowd at Talca on Saturday afternoon. Under 16s go free. Season ticket holders can bring somebody for free as well. And overall reduced ticket prices. They want a big crowd at that game as well. Right. So we are actually celebrating women's football, of course, at Vicar Street. Uh, it is next Wednesday, August the 17th, in association with Cadbury FC. Emma Byrne is going to be there um, hopefully not breaking any legs <laughs> she's going to be alongside Karen Carney Michael Owen and Ian Wright uh, obviously um, the proceeds from the evening are going to go to, towards supporting uh, Irish women's grassroots football otbsports.com forward slash events is where you can get your tickets for that T's and C's apply we will see you on the night now some of our YouTube comments alive and well this morning regarding our advanced mark debate um Generally, I think all in favour of me, Owen, you'll, you'll agree that... Read, um, read about there. Obviously, let's, let's have them. I obviously won the debate. I hate the mark, but no point talking about the 2017 final, etc. Because 90% of the discourse was, football is dying. Dublin are going to win 20 in a row. How do we stop Dublin? You reap what you sow, says Owen Cleary.
what, what does he mean by you reap what you sow? I don't know. <laughs> like the 2017 All Ireland final was immediately considered one of the greatest games of football we've ever seen, and I, I don't, I don't know what, I don't know what that means. Uh, Dob says there are three marks at most per match. On the list of blights in the game, it's fairly low down. It's a pity the GA are forced to make up rules to counteract managers who don't care about ruining the game. Well, yes, exactly. It, like I mean, that's my major issue is with the the, the heightened sense of uh, a pall that is out there around the advanced mark that like, that it has destroyed the game or something like that. Uh, Nolte Jack Jack Nolte says Clifford took advantage of the mark it's not his fault but we'd better see him score without it and as if he won't be able to he would don't like it but not his fault wonder if Galway Comer would did it would people say uh, what, what would people say if Comer did it like the same uh, thing I don't like it I just don't I just think that it slows the game down that's my fundamental issue here Um O'Toole 1905 says fair point that Derry beat Tyrone so sit higher but there's no question for me that Derry are maxing out as it is and can't get to an All-Ireland Tyrone are far far more likely All-Ireland contender I don't think it's no doubt I think that um, it'll be interesting to see where they go to next Michael says Desi wasn't the correct appointment in the first place I don't know really like he'd managed that group of players at underage level it was the succession plan it looked like exactly what you should do it it looks like what well-run counties and organisations they have a plan in the eventuality that somebody it's like what Kilkenny have done and if it's the wrong person we'll find out but ultimately they they decided from a long way out that they were going to put a plan in place and that's the right thing to do that looks like good management mm. yeah no it does and like I mean I think that there's probably a little bit more to be proven from, from his perspective as well um, on, on Desi's side of things Tomás O'Connell says why did Monaghan keep getting ranked above Kildare this year a similar championship run and Kildare whipped them in the league are we using league uh, results to, to prove or to predict what's going to happen next year or to predict yeah I, like I, I, I see the point that they are definitely a good place I wonder is like there is always like a bias based on the fact that they get tanked by Dublin and would Monaghan get, have got tanked by Dublin this year maybe to be fair uh, Owen has the green gold tinted glasses on this morning it's the weather for it I guess says Clinchy the, uh, Kerry seems to be nice this time of year when the weather's good for the three days a year and it doesn't rain in Kerry yeah, get on down for those three days. It's puck fair at the moment, of course. Uh, oh, in yeah. the middle of the, it's day two. Yeah, the the goat trapped in the cage. Yeah, David Clifford. <laughs> what? <laughs> you just refer to the goat. Oh, okay. Uh, if Owen's point about being so easy to defend the ball, the big full forward was true, then why did Donny cause so much damage throughout his career? Because that was Pat before Gallagher. innovation really came into defensive coaching. They found a way around Donny, and they succeeded in stopping. Did they Donaghy. find a way around? Yes, Donaghy. they did. The ball just got into uh, him, start being shite. They got him on the ground and they gouged his eye out. That's what they did. That's what. Uh, that, that, I that mean, there you go. And that they they didn't actually. That should have just been refereed. Like, yeah. No, they, they definitely found a way to to stop. Uh, Donaghy like it was uh, a fairly blunt instrument approach which worked very well for, for Kerry with an outstanding full forward and a brilliant set of forwards around him and then but hang on hang on, on hang on hang on sorry if Donaghy had been f- uh, fully fit at the same time as James O'Donoghue and also Gooch when Gooch went to 11 that would have been unstoppable but they, they the stars didn't align enough for them to all be fully fit for long enough for us to see because Donny wasn't just a high ball into him full merchant no he ball. wasn't of course that, not that's yeah. the thing but like, then we're only talking about one specific part of his game here like so we're not, this is not a debate on Donaghy this is the, the debate on the route one 
ball doesn't touch the ground thing. Like, yeah, and this is the whole point. It was it's a tiny little part of the game. I don't know. Was that was that Route One stuff? Not like uh, they just got bad at it because they because he was so good at it that Kerry didn't get good at like. No, because Tyrone were like, we can actually just double marker player. We don't need to go fifteen on fifteen. Yeah, I mean maybe then that leaves space further at the field and they weren't innovative enough. But anyway, okay, possibly. Uh, Mark Lawrenson read the famous people in the studio has to be a better contender than John O'Shea league titles and European Cups we forgot to mention Graeme Souness as well he's been in the studio yeah yeah um, but I still think Heather O'Reilly probably trumps it with three gold medals and yeah. a World Cup it's not bad is it no pretty impressive character OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day um Jer has a bogger accent and has been putting on his normal voice this whole time, says Ray R. There, there are uh, <laughs> there are two like Jer characters that he does, which I'm sure people that regular watchers of the show. There's like the uh, mysterious bogger who obviously appeared this morning, and then there's like the high pitched squeaky voice guy that he does as well. I think that those two, like if we could do like a sort of Richard Cooper esque thing where you just do a sketch where you, you you interview those two guys, I think that could be quite funny. I I mean maybe I I love the way you always like you know draw attention to it. It, it's it's a great comic foil thing where you're like, oh look at you, you're you're making a joke there. I'm like, thanks, Owen. That's fucking great. Yeah, because what is rare well is done. wonderful. It's what? like, oh my god, there's actual some humour coming from that side of the studio for once. Hey, Brilliant. shots fired. You're you're getting brave now. Tommy, Tommy says serious questions, lads. Where is Adrian? Who's your daddy, Barry? He hasn't been seen since the Talton Cup final. There you go. I think you've answered your own question there. Massive celebrations in Mullingar that night. He's, he hasn't uh, been seen he's since. milking John Heslin's cows for him. That's what one of the one of the benefits of winning a trophy is that you get local lads to come and do your work for you for the next three or four months. <laughs> Adrian's up on John Heslin's farm doing whatever it is John Heslin wants him to do. And he won't be back until John's finished with him. Who's your daddy indeed? OTBAM brought to life. Eat money by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. OTBAM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.